Hello, Dragonfly Nation. This is Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave, and this is episode 143 of the podcast, all about how to garden cheaply. So stay tuned. Hey, folks, we're here with another episode of the podcast. This one's all about how to garden on a budget, how to garden cheaply. And this is an important thing in my eyes. Uh, when it comes down to homesteading skills, growing your own food, starting your own little project, whether it's a small garden or a big garden, cost is a big thing to a lot of people. Cost is a huge factor. Uh, I hear from people all the time that I would love to do this, but I don't have the money for it. You don't need to spend a lot. Um, when I first started my big garden, I started quite small. I started with five garden beds, each of them about four feet by eight feet, give or take. And I spent hmm, somewhere around a thousand dollars. That was a lot of money to spend that did not have to get spent, but because of the time frame I was under and what I want to get accomplished quickly, that was the price I had to pay for it. And we produced enough food out of those five garden beds to supply us with over 60% of our food. Now, everything else came from hunting, trapping, fishing, and grocery stores with a lot less money being spent at the grocery store. And that was the big investment was a thousand dollars up front. And I could spend probably a third to a quarter of what I usually spent at the grocery store because now we had beans, corn, potatoes, tomatoes, peppers, all kinds of stuff that would keep us fed through the winter time and through the lean times. Uh, and that's a huge boon to it. And that's, that is an option is to spend, you know, a grand on seeds, on, uh, roots, on, on fruit trees or shrubs, as well as on soil, because that was the big issue is our property. As you've heard on previous episodes, the soil here is crap. The soil here is really, really poor to grow food in. Uh, you can grow trees in it all right. It's a clay soil. It's really dense clay. And so even trees don't do the greatest in there, but they can survive. They just won't thrive. And if you want to get a lot of production out of your garden, thriving of the plants is more important than surviving of the plants or survival of the plants. And so we spent the money. If I'd had the time, and that's the, that's the real secret to almost anything, you need to have either a lot of time, a lot of skills, or a lot of money, or a mix of those. I had skills and I had money, so I was able to get it done quick. If I had skills and time, I could have done it for a lot cheaper. And that's what I want to talk about today. Since then, we've kept our budget quite low on the garden, you know, being very thrifty with how we do stuff because we've expanded it quite a bit, but we don't want to spend more money on that expansion. And so I want to give you some advice. I want to give you some techniques you can do that. There's three main categories you got to think about when it comes down to costs in the garden. First is materials. The second is soil amendments. And the third is the actual crops themselves. And so we're going to break it down into those three categories and talk about them in as much detail as possible, focusing on how you can do it cheap, if not for free. And that's the main goal here. Cheap, if not for free. If you can do free, even better. If it's cheap, that's awesome. If you can keep your whole garden, whether your garden's a small little, uh, you know, porch top garden bed or a little couple garden boxes, or if it's a full blown, you know, 25 by 40 garden bed that you're putting a ton of crops in, the budget is the main thing. There's like, how much can you spend on that? And so starting off with materials, that's what we got to figure out. Now we're not going to go over tools at all in this episode. 
Uh, there's a tools of the trade seg uh, episode from about a year back on homesteading tools. That's a great one to look into on shovels, rakes, hoes, pitchforks, chainsaws, whatever you got to really look into. We want to focus on the things that you got to buy to actually make the garden, make the garden happen. And so materials are the first one. The first category of thought in materials is garden boxes. Garden boxes and container gardening are a great way to grow when you're in a refined, in a, in a reduced space. If you have, you know, a 10 by 20 backyard or you have just a porch or you just have a balcony, you got to be really mindful of how you're going to grow there. If you have just a concrete pad, you can grow food on that. You just got to make garden beds on top of that. And the best way to go about that is garden boxes. Garden boxes or container gardening can be done in a whole lot of different ways. It can be done with just buckets. Uh, for a lot of years, I was growing sunchokes, also known as Jerusalem artichoke, uh, as well as tomatoes, cucumbers, uh, mm, for the most part, a lot of leafy greens like kale, red mustard, things like that, in five-gallon pails. And that worked just fine. You got to do a few things with it here and there. If you want to have a little bit bigger, you got to be a little bit more creative. Um, I know friends of mine have used bathtubs, old bathtubs that they found at the junkyard, and they turned those into beautiful garden beds. There's a gentleman up in the Tomogamy area from uh, Bear Island First Nation that I know uses wrecked canoes because on a certain part of, the of uh, one of the rivers up there, <laughs> every season there's canoes that just wash up on the riverbank damaged and trashed and thrashed that people abandoned and so he just drags them up fills them with soil from the forest and they become gardens or garden container uh containers gardening containers or garden boxes garden beds whatever you want to call them there's a lot of options out there uh tires are used quite a bit quite a few people use tires there's research into how that's not a great idea if, if you're trying to you know avoid from contaminants in your food but there's also the argument that if it's cheap and it's not that damaging, go ahead and do it. Do your own research on that kind of stuff. I'm not going to tell you what you should or shouldn't do with that. Uh, there are methods that have been used for potato growing in tires where you have one tire down. You put some soil and compost in there, a little bit of straw, throw your, potato, your seed potatoes in there. And when they sprout and they start to leaf out, that's when you mound them. Traditionally, you mound up more soil or more straw, whatever method you're using. In this situation, you put another tire down and fill that with more soil or compost or mix of both. And then from there, up goes the shoots again. You throw another tire on, you cover them with soil, you cause them to come, uh, come back up again, again, and again until you have five or six tires stacked and you're watering them, you're irrigating them, you're doing everything you can, amending the soil as you go, always adding fresh compost every time you add another tire. And the plan is at the end, you topple it all over and you pull all the potatoes out. I've seen differing results from that. I've seen a lot of different results coming from that. And what I mean by differing results is some people are saying, yeah, every single tire has like five pounds to 10 pounds of potatoes in it. And if you have five to 10, uh, five to 10 tires, you have five to 10 pounds per tire. You got a lot of potatoes. The majority of people seem to find that there's a lot of potatoes on the very top in the very, very bottom and not much in between. And so they're not seeing the same results. 
Um, I've done the tire method a few times with potatoes and have never really seen good results come out of it. And I don't really know what the answer there is. It may be the fact that there's a constraining amount of soil in there that's compacting and causing it harder for the mid-range of tires in the pile to actually be able to pump out potatoes uh, or large enough potatoes to make it justifiable. It may be that uh, they're not getting enough water all the way down because it's a confined space and it's quite a narrow space and therefore only so much water can really penetrate down, you know, four, five, six feet. There's a lot of differing arguments about why it may not work. I'm not a big believer in it. I honestly, with a lot of these plants like potatoes, I prefer to just grow them directly in the ground. Uh, I don't even bother doing garden beds for them. I prefer to just do it strictly on the ground. And we'll get into that uh, in a bit. A lot of people, we want to focus on the containers first and then talk about the benefits of growing in the ground afterwards. Uh, both have their merits, both have their values. For those of us living in, for those of you that are living in urban areas or suburban areas, it may be easier to just do container growing. So we're going to stick to that for now. Tires is an option, not an option that I'm a big fan of. I haven't seen a lot of good results from them, and I've heard from most people that there's not a lot of great results. So it's not something I recommend, though people do do it. So your mileage may vary. Try it out, do your own research, figure it out. Scrap wood like pallets or rail ties. So growing up, we had gardens all over my mom and dad's property. A garden bed on the side of the house, a garden bed in the back of the house, a little natural garden and flower garden in between the two. And the only real delineation of garden bed and trail were the rail ties. I don't know where those rail ties came from. Uh, I don't know how they were acquired, but there was about a dozen of them in total delineating the sides of the garden beds. And then soil would be mounted up behind them. And those were our garden beds growing up. And they worked just fine. You can argue the contamination of creosote and all the other chemicals that are used in rail ties. Again, do your own research. Make the decisions for you that you consider healthy and safe. I'm not telling you to go out and get a bunch of rail ties that are fresh off the rail track. There's also the legality questions of how are you getting those rail ties? Are they being given away or sold? What's the cost to those rail ties? On the other hand, you can go to almost any large industrial shop and pretty much ask them immediately, how many pallets can I take? Pallets are a constant in workshop spaces at timber yards or lumber yards at hardware stores, a big box hardware stores, like a place like Home Depot's or Lowe's, you often find dumpsters piled up with pallets. And so taking those off their hands saves them on cost of, you know, removal and disposal. And so you're saving them some money. So they're going to often just give them to you for free, just to get rid of them. Uh, I have picked up dozens and dozens of pallets and friends have picked up dozens more pallets for me and dropped them off because you can find them pretty much on the sides of roads if you're lucky. Pallets can be quickly disassembled with a rips, uh, with a, you know, a sawzall that's got nail cutting or metal cutting uh, blades so that you can go through the nails and not have to worry too much. You can use a hammer and a pry bar to pop out nails and then just have the boards as they are. And then whatever carpentry tools and carpenter, carpentry skills you have, you can then start making garden boxes and garden beds. Raised beds out of pallets, the wood is often a little too thin to really contain a large amount of soil. 
Uh, if you start making garden boxes or garden beds that are the size of like eight cubic yards, that may just be too much mass for that real thin pallets to hold together. So you may have to figure out how to reinforce. You may have to figure out how to do a little bit of creative work with other scrap wood. But you go to enough lumber yards and you go to enough hardware stores, enough places. If you've got a friend that works in carpentry, there's often scrap wood just laying around. Plywood. Uh, again, there's glues in there that people may be concerned about when it comes down to gardens and how safe it is and contamination wise. But there's chipboard, plywood, all kinds of scrap wood out there. And you can get really, really creative with how you make your beds. We have uh, at our place, my in-laws picked us up these bricks that are uh, slotted on four on all four sides, uh, these square bricks, and those slots are just wide enough to fit two-by-fours. And they picked these up for us as a Christmas gift last year or the year before. I can't quite remember when. And you just stack them into whatever height you need and slide the boards in between. They become the cornerstones for your garden beds. And we've got a couple of them already set up. I'll be setting up a couple more this week. And they work really, really well. Those cost, uh, they, they did cost money, but you can also get creative with cinder blocks and, you know, of course with screws or zip ties with boards of wood and putting them together, making good solid corners to support it and sustain it. And that's really the, the, the gist of it all is how can you get creative to make this work? That's the number one thing that I want to get into your head. And I want to get it into your head now. I'm recording this mid-December of 2023. This is going to be one of our last episodes of 2023 because now is the time to plan for your garden. Get everything sorted out. This is a good time of year to get the garden beds built so that they're kind of eased in and ready, especially if you're putting a lot of fresh compost in. Let that compost freeze and age and break up and break down in the spring so that by the time it's planting season, everything's nice and, you know, jiving and 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 gelling and doing its thing. That's really the like the nitty gritty importance is to plan ahead. Like if you don't have money, you need time and skills. Remember time and skills. So right now is the time to go. Beyond rail ties and pallets, you can use things like cinder blocks and just make solid garden beds. In fact, with the classic cinder block where you have the two big holes in the middle, you can stand them up vertical, the holes being vertical line out your garden bed. It could be four by eight, two by six, whatever dimensions you want, and then fill that all with the soil and other medium that you're going to be using to grow in, and then put in more soil in those holes. And you have now double the amount, not necessarily double, but a whole lot more surface area to garden in. And I know a lot of folks who use cinder blocks and what they'll do is they'll fill up the actual garden bed with their vegetables and then surround them in little patches in those holes with marigolds, calendula, all these different plants that can help be deterrents to pests or be pollinator plants that attract in the pollinators that come in and help benefit the garden. Uh, some people put their herbs in there and then have like their main vegetables inside the, the, the cinder block garden bed. Great option if you can find cinder blocks for cheap. You can find them out there on the sides of roads, find them in uh, old junkyards, find them on old properties. Maybe you've purchased a property and you're cleaning up the place. You're like, man, there's a ton of old cinder blocks here and they don't have to be perfect. They can have some cracks in them. They can have pieces missing off the corners. You just got to get creative with how you line it all up and get it all working together. Cinder blocks are a great option for larger garden beds. 
for smaller garden boxes on like a porch or a deck or a balcony or just a patio, I'm a big fan of milk crates. Now, Rye has done it in the past where he was growing uh, peppers in milk crates that he lined with uh, with um, landscape fabric. And that's a great option. If you can get a little roll of landscape fabric, it's usually not too expensive for a small roll of it. You can line a lot of different containers that are otherwise too open to hold in the soil and then just snip it and, and zip tie or hognose uh, ring, whatever you got around, or just how you fold it into the milk crate. And the beauty of that is, especially with things like peppers and tomatoes, as their roots expand and they get to those edges, as they start trying to penetrate that fabric and get up to the actual proper milk crate, they go, oh, there's a lot of oxygen out there. That's not where my roots belong. And they start doing what's called air pruning. They, they actually prune off their own roots in those areas. So it expands as far as it needs to and then stops and takes care of itself. That's a great option there. The other beauty of the milk crate is you can't overwater, you know, because water can just pour out of it. It's just a big open mesh container made of plastic. And so water can easily pour out. The downside is you have to water more often because they're exposed. And that's usually the case with container gardening anyways. Because the soil is up off the ground, and even though it may be insulated by wood or cinder blocks or concrete or whatever, often, more than often than not, those garden beds dry out faster than in-the-ground garden beds, which is another bonus to the in-the-ground garden beds if you can do that. But yeah, you can use milk crates. Another one that I've done a bunch, a bunch, is any wooden containers that aren't being used for anything else. Um, we had an old set of drawers that had started to corrode, not corrode, but start to break down. It was really crappy material and we were getting ready to throw it out. And I looked at all the drawers inside the chest, the drawer chest and said, no, 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 I'm using those. And I just simply drilled a couple of holes in the bottom for drainage, filled them with a good soil mix. And I planted tomatoes, cucumbers, strawberries, same thing with bigger wooden crates. I had this old antique wooden crate that was just weathered and it wasn't really any point trying to, you know, preserve it. Uh, it wasn't an important old antique. It was just an old wooden box. And I filled it up with a ton of soil. And the first year I grew a ton of cucumbers out of that box, a ton of cucumbers. And then up until now and still being used now, we've been growing to, uh, strawberries in it. And that was a great option. These drawers and old wooden chests and boxes and stuff, they look really nice with the wooden atmosphere to them, uh, a nice aesthetic in the garden with the drawers that they're all uniform sized drawers and you've got a lot of them. You can even do like a stacking process so you're saving space where you stack them uh, Lincoln log style and each one of them becomes a garden bed for a different crop. So you can have herbs in one, you can have tomatoes in another, peppers in another, cucumbers in another. And they're all just kind of interlocked together on the patio. Look very nice that way. With the drawer knobs pointing outwards, facing outwards, it can look really, really nice. With old wooden boxes and crates, people see those and they see them lined, in, uh, lined with beautiful flowers and beautiful crops of all kinds. And just looks nice. It's aesthetically pleasing. Old wooden boxes, all that kind of stuff work really, really well. The final ones, like plastic jugs, like those classic... Um, not classic, but pretty common water jugs from like coolers. Uh, for a long time, we couldn't drink the water here in our pro on our property because the water has a high sulfur content. 
And so we could wash with it. We could wash laundry. We could wash our bodies, wash dishes, but you didn't want to drink it. Uh, it just gave you a, a one hell of a stomach ache. Um, and so we bought water and we would refill the jugs, but sometimes we just used, just kept having to buy more water and there wasn't necessarily a filling station nearby to refill the jugs all the time. Uh, for a long time, we had one here in the community, a, a water filling station at the gas station, our convenience store, but that went away for some reason. Never got a straight answer as, as to why. And then the closest place was in town, which is like a 35 minute drive. Uh, they had to pay money for every jug and we go through water because it's us drinking the water, the dogs drinking the water, the cats drinking the water. Um, it would go out quickly. And so like spending money again and again, driving into town every time we need to get water filled up could become a headache. And so we would just buy more jugs arguing that, well, they're recyclable. What's the big deal? Well, we accumulate at one point just because of just how time was and our lives were, I think we accumulate 20 jugs. And so what I did was I cut the necks off them, kept those, filled these jugs with soil and compost and leaf matter and whatever else I can get just to fill it up. And we'll talk about soil amendments and bulking and all that kind of stuff in another part of the segment of this episode. And then I would just simply put a bunch of seeds in there and duct tape the necks back on the lids effectively back on cap them. And they were little greenhouses and they would easily germinate all the peppers, all the tomatoes, all the freaking cucumbers, all those those things, the greens, uh, lettuces, cabbages, all that stuff in these containers out in the yard. The soil is getting exposed to sun, which is helping to warm it up even faster. The whole thing's like a mini greenhouse. And then when they were about, you know, two to three inches tall and they were about to start poking against the neck, we would take off the duct tape, take all those pieces of plastic lids, uh, air quotes, there's the necks of the jugs, and we could recycle those because they get shredded and reprocessed into other containers. And so we would have all these garden, uh, these effectively garden beds, uh, raised beds, raised container gardening right there in the yard. It was such an easy way. It didn't, it didn't have an aesthetic, uh, aesthetically pleasing effect. Uh, we've had, we had a couple of neighbors and a couple of community members be like, that looks really janky. And it was, but it worked because it was effectively free plastic containers. We paid good money for these containers. We drank a lot of water out of them. Might as well make use of them. Eventually got rid of all those through recycling because we had better options available to us as time went on. One of the other options is, of course, old buckets, whether they're steel pails, tin pails, galvanized pails, plastic pails. Those can also work. It all comes down to the aesthetic you're looking for. One of the things I really was hoping to do is when we first tore down the old barn behind the house is we found an old toilet, just a whole toilet, no water tank, just the toilet, just the bowl. And what I originally was planning before, we don't know who took it and threw it out, but the original plan was to put it right in the middle of the garden, like a centerpiece, fill it with soil and grow pol a little pollinator garden right in the middle of the garden with this toilet. <laughs> just because I liked that aesthetic. We have a damaged boat on the property right now that we could possibly repair. It has a bunch of holes in it. Um, it's going to cost me a good amount of money and we already own quite a few boats. So the plan right now is come spring, actually we may do it in the next week or so, is take it right to the heart of the, of the garden, put it down, fill it with straw, fill it with wood chip, cover that with as much topsoil and, and compost as possible and make a boat garden bed 
why not? Like, it's an option. It, does it look janky? Yeah. Does it look redneck as hell? Yeah. But I kind of like that aesthetic here and there. Not overwhelmingly. I don't want to make the whole house, uh, the whole property look like a junkyard. But it's kind of this cute little quaint, like, oh, you walk by this one boat and then you realize it's full of begonias or petunias or something. It could be a flower garden. It could be a vegetable garden, whatever. I really dig that kind of aesthetic to it all. And uh, I really appreciate that kind of look to it. So there's a lot of options when it comes down to the materials for the garden boxes. And there's a whole lot more you can think about yourself. Old pieces of furniture, anything that can contain soil can become a garden bed. You don't have to buy, you know, the birdies garden beds, raised garden beds. You don't have to spend $500 per garden bed making wooden ones. You don't have to do all this extravagant work. You can just look around and say, does that contain soil? Can I drill some holes in it to drain water? Can I fit plants in there? If all those say yes, make it into a garden bed or a raised bed or a container garden. Try it out, experiment, get creative. Don't be afraid of the aesthetic until you have the money or the time to make better, better containers that are more aesthetically pleasing. For now, we just want to grow plants. So work with what you got. Now, one option that I've seen for like little raised, aesthetically pleasing garden beds or raised container gardening was a friend of mine went to a thrift store and she found this stainless steel dish. We're not quite sure what it was for. Uh, the leading theory was it was a fruit bowl, a stainless steel fruit bowl, and it had like a round center that rated out to four corners at the top on the rim, and the rim corners were a little higher than the, than the edges. Just this nice little dish, and it happened to have a little divot in the middle, just kind of a like a little, where like a mini ball-peen hammer just tapped it once. And she looked at that and went, I can put a drill bit against that and drill a hole through, and that'd be a drain hole. And so she went and got a metal cutting drill bit out of her, out of her little shop. Uh, she has this little basement workshop space and she grabbed that drill bit, hooked it into her drill and drilled a hole through, filled it with a good soil mix and then grew ginger in it. And then just to kind of like cap it off and make it more aesthetically pleasing, she put it in the middle as a centerpiece at her porch table, her table on the deck, uh, which may look beautiful. It was a nice little pleasing thing where you see these like ginger shoots coming up and growing and the ginger root is expanding. And then come winter, she would just simply pick it up, or sorry, in the fall, pick it up, take it into the kitchen, keep it in a nice warm window, keep the plant dormant through this uh, winter time into mid-spring, and then she would bring it back out onto the porch pretty much the same week weekend that she would be going out planting all of her other crops and starting to do barbecues. Very aesthetically pleasing. Very simple and kind of like, like a beautiful, simplistic way of explaining container gardening and how it can look. It can be very aesthetically pleasing for dirt cheap prices. Now, with that concept of growing the plants and where are we going to grow them? If you have a little bit of dirt on your property already, like let's say you have a backyard, it could be 10 by 12 or 10 by 30 or 20 by 50, doesn't matter. It could be very small space, very large space. That's a great area to start growing food and growing a garden in general. And so to me, that's the best option because it's the cheapest option out of everything. Everything else requires a lot of work. All you really got to do with a lawn is kill the grass and then plant your crops in amongst the corpses of that grass. 
And this is the great time of year to begin killing a lawn is December. The grass is dormant. It's not really going to be able to put up a fight much. This is when we can do a lot of different things. You can either rototill it all up, rip it up all out of the ground, turn the sod over so that it, the roots are exposed to air and the grass is, can, is not exposed to sun. And that can often do a lot of work. I've argue, uh, I've seen, and I'll argue that that's not always the most effective way to kill grass simply because I've thrown sod over, done exactly what everybody tells you. And then within about a month, unless you did a really good amount of mulching, the grass just comes right back up. It just does its thing as if nothing ever happened. So I get where people are coming from with the whole rip the sod up, turn it over and and you can grow on it. Sure. Um, you still got to do what you would have to do anyways. And that's mulch. Mulching in one way or another is the killing of the grass and any other plants below that mulch because they don't get exposed to sun. They aren't getting as much water and they're not, well, they will get water, but that's a whole other thing we'll get into in a minute. You're basically killing those plants because you're keeping them from sun and you're suppressing them and putting a lot of weight on top of them and so they just can't compete against that. And so they die. That can be with a black tarp, like a black poly tarp, uh, a solarization blanket or solarizing tarp. That can be with sheets of plywood. That can be sheet mulching where you take uh, big pieces of brown cardboard cut them into big strips or big uh, sheets, place them on top of the surface and cover that with dirt. Uh, and that can kill grass very effectively. And because the cardboard is pretty dense and it'll hold for quite a while, it'll keep the grass from being able to send shoots up through it pretty uh, very quickly. All the way to taking straw and doing the Ruth Strout method, uh, Ruth Stout method of just covering a space with straw, letting everything underneath that die and then growing just in the straw. That works too. Why not? Try that out. I'm a big proponent of growing in the ground rather than containers whenever possible for a few reasons. First and foremost, it's the cheapest, as I just said. Second reason is it's insulative. We have done this experiment a dozen times with a dozen different kinds of plants. Uh, I believe we did a TikTok and possibly an Instagram video on our accounts talking about this very thing where we had two different horseradish plants. The one horseradish plant was in a container and that horseradish plant had been growing in that container since the fall before when we put the root in that container. The other uh, horseradish root plant, or sorry, horseradish plant was actually a piece of root that broke off when I moved that container that had the root had grown out of one of the drain holes of that container into the ground. So two months after this horseradish plant had started in the spring, I moved the container, broke a piece of root off and left it in the ground. And two months later, the horseradish in the bucket was quite small. Leaves were maybe about five to eight inches long. Some of them maybe about nine inches long. The one in the ground was bigger than a rhubarb. And I mean that like it was, uh, this year again, it did the exact same thing when I walked up to it beside it and actually compared it to myself. I'm uh, currently about 5'11", because my back injuries. A week ago, I was closer to 6'1", again. Um, gotta love compressed spines. But when I did the little video comparison or, or photo comparison of me to it, I was around 5'11", at the time. And <laughs> the damn horseradish in the ground was as tall as me. So, like, nearly six feet tall, this plant was. Incredible. 
And that's because it's getting a lot more insulation. So the ground keeps it warmer, easier. It's also insulated from drought because the soil holds all that water. And if we mulch well and we cover the ground well with cover crops and uh, creepy crawly plants to keep everything kind of shaded, the water retention can last for quite a long time. Wood chip, when it's first laid down, uh, is very hydrophobic. The wood needs to get heavily saturated and have contact with the soil for a long time, at least a month in my experience, before that mulch really helps to actually hold water and retain water and shade the ground and keep it from getting dry, too dry. The first little bit, mulch can actually suck water away and suck nitrogen away and do a lot of damage to a garden bed. So that's why, again, this time of year is the best time of year to get your soil, your ground taken care of, getting, getting your materials ready and getting your garden beds sorted so that by the time spring comes along, all that wood chip will be nice and soggy from the snow runoff and melt off. And it'll be nice and mycorrhizally strong from microbes moving into it, like fungal mycorrhizae and microbes like, uh, 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 my brain's fried right now, bacteria, uh, as well as protozoa and worms and all these little critters doing their jobs in there, doing their beautiful work with the mulch. Putting mulch directly on crops can kill the crops because they're going to suck up water. They're going to take a long time before they let water penetrate through all the way down to the ground again, depending on how thick you pile your mulch. And it can extract nitrogen from that soil for a little bit. So it's better to put your mulch down now than later. And that's another benefit of using soil that's right on the ground. Garden beds going right into the ground. The soil can hold a lot more water and hold a lot more nutrients than those little garden beds or those raised beds or those little containers you're doing. So it's a big benefit. And again, it's cheaper. So those are two major benefits. The third major benefit is the fact that the soil being where it is already is part of the ecology. There's already microbes. There's already worms. There's already mycorrhizae happening. You just need to work with it. The problem is grass is hard to kill. So mulching and solarizing are your best options and then building atop of the carcasses of the grass. That's your best bet. That is your absolute best bet. So growing in the ground whenever possible is my preference for a lot of reasons, mostly because it benefits the plants. Um, if you have to grow, grow on the surface and you can't grow under the surface for reasons of concrete, reasons of not having a yard, only having balcony space, container gardening is the way to go. And even when we have like now over an acre of garden, we start off with less than a quarter acre. Now we're over an acre of garden, including the duck pen, the food forest projects, all that kind of stuff. We still use containers to grow a lot of our crops. What if it's a crop you don't want taking over? Something like mint, something like horseradish. It's best to grow them in containers because that way they can't spread beyond. And you just got to think about the, how creative you got to be with what the containers happen to be to keep that under budget. The final major part for materials uh, outside of, again, homesteading tools and equipment, I would argue is greenhouse materials. Greenhouses can be big greenhouses. Greenhouses can be very small greenhouses. If you're trying to do like a hot box, which is a two by five or two by four foot space garden bed that you put a bunch of horse manure or cattle manure in, right on the bottom of the bed of the little raised bed and then cover that with topsoil that's been amended 
you can grow in that little hot box lettuce, tomato, uh, sorry, not tomatoes, lettuce, cabbages, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, all the brassicas and lettuces of all varieties and kale late into the late, late fall into early winter if you build a little hoop house garden greenhouse on top of it. And that way the horse manure that's composting down and breaking down that's generating heat, it'll warm the ground and then the greenhouse, the little tiny greenhouse on top catches the solar radiation from the sun, keeping everything nice and warm during the daytime and helping generate more heat for later in the season, allowing your lettuce, kale, brassicas all to grow. So that's one great option. Regular size greenhouses are also really beneficial in general. And there's a whole bunch of different greenhouses. We're starting a greenhouse project, hopefully in 2024, uh, late 2024, early 2025. Excuse me. And that greenhouse is going to be a China style greenhouse that doubles as a retaining wall for our property. And that China style greenhouse is going to potentially have a door into a root cellar and all this other beautiful stuff that we're working on. But that's later down the road. Right now, I actually need a greenhouse set up, mainly because we have Muscovy ducks, and our Muscovy ducks don't do well at minus 20, minus 30, minus 40, minus 50. We've never experienced minus 50 right where I live, but all those other temperatures can cause frostbite and worse damage to our ducks. At the same time, I want to have an area that I can keep warm and start seeds earlier in the year, like in March for peppers and tomatoes and tobacco and everything like that all the teas and uh, all the solarium uh, nightshade family plants. And so I need a space that will be warmer and I need a space to put my ducks that will also be warmer. So why not build a greenhouse? What I'm using right now to build this greenhouse is an old shelter logic tarp garage shed thing frame that I'm then putting on slats of wood on the back, adding insulation on the north side, framing in doors on both ends, and then I'm going to put a bird, uh, like chicken wire, all over the thing to keep the birds in and keep predators out. Hardware cloth along the bottom half to just really make sure ermines and stuff to, and rats don't get in. And then covering the very front of the whole thing that's facing south with four millimeter poly tarps, poly sheets, or plastic sheets. That is the design. That's how it's going to go up in the next couple of days. We're hoping to get it started. By before New Year, we're hoping to have it, ha have it done and then move the ducks in and they can stay in there all winter doing a deep litter uh, management of their bedding. And then we have all this beautiful space that I can put a little uh, uh, crop table in and start putting in seed trays, just cover those so the birds don't get into them and come early, early, early spring, start germinating seeds that were ready for the planting season and they're nice and tall because they kept warm with the body heat of the ducks and the solar heat of the sun all entering that greenhouse. It's a beautiful project. Beautiful project. that's cost me very, very, very little. If you don't have an old shelter logic or old tarp, uh, tarp shed frame or anything like that, you can make simple arches out of saplings or bamboo. Saplings you can cut on your property. Maybe you've got a bunch of purging buckthorn or black locust that you're trying to manage. Don't throw away those poles. Don't burn those saplings. Don't turn them into firewood. <coughs> turn them into arches. Build a frame like a wigwam and you can turn that into a greenhouse frame very easily. 
don't have any of those kinds of plants around, pick up some bamboo sh- bamboo uh, stakes at the dollar store or at the gardening supply. If you don't have that, PVC or PEX pipe, depending on the size of the garden bed you're going for, works really, really well for that kind of stuff. Scrap wood can be used to build a frame and then just cover with clear plastic. Clear plastic sheets, uh, for example, from at Home Depot right now, you can get four millimeter thick poly that's 10 foot by 100 feet, more than enough to make a bunch of small greenhouses. If you get two or three of those that you're still under $300, you can make a whole cover of greenhouse for a decent sized greenhouse. Whole bunch of options there. Or if you want to go really cheap and you're just making like little warming boxes or hot boxes for your kale and cabbages, you can get away with the 0.7 millimeter, 9 by 12 foot uh, painter's drop cloths, clear plastic painter's drop cloths that you find at most dollar store brands. You can find them. Duct tape, zip ties, and nails can get you very, very far with a lot of this stuff with very little carpentry skills. You can still build a freaking greenhouse, people. If you want to really get even further in, like what I'm doing with our current greenhouse project is I'm putting in insulative foam on the north side. I'm putting in uh, mylar uh, space tarps effectively on the north side facing south so they can catch and reflect and insulate the heat and keep it in there. And then at night, I'm going to be rolling a big space tarp over the whole cover that's clear plastic to retain the heat at night to help the ducks and help the crops. Then every morning, roll that back, let the sun in, let the duck's body heat start producing more heat again, yada, yada, yada. And effectively, I'm making a giant version of the Morse Kohansky Super Shelter. And so we can take our bushcraft concepts and move them into our gardens very easily, saving yourself a lot of money in the long run. Now, beyond your material hardware equipment, your scrap wood, your pallets, your cinder blocks, your tires, whatever, we got to get into the soil. Building soil is so darn important. And having the right kind of soil amendments is key. And this can be where a lot of money can be spent. When we first started, as I mentioned earlier, our soil was absolute trash. Hard-packed clay. You couldn't get the roots from green plants growing in there, let alone like uh, your your collard greens, your kale, nothing like that could really expand its root system. Sushi's panting because we just took her for a quick run. You couldn't get root vegetables to grow in there. Potatoes, carrots, beets, they just weren't thriving in there whatsoever. And so we had to buy soil. That was the decision I made because it again comes down to you either have time and skill, skill and money, or money and time, or all three. If you if you don't have a lot of time, you got to spend more money. If you don't have a lot of money, it's going to take you more time. And so to build the soil, I realized it was going to take me a minimum of a year to get the soil where I wanted it to be. And so we decided to fork over the cash up front. It was about $580, $600, something like that, for enough soil for five garden beds. And that I consider was a good investment. And I still think that was a great investment. I'm, I'm very happy with that, the amount of money we spent. We got the soil from a local company called Peterborough Landscape Supply. They have good organic soil blends uh, from compost mixes, mushroom compost mixes, veggie compost mixes, all the way to just a topsoil compost blend, all kinds of different stuff. We went, I believe, with a mushroom compost and topsoil blend, which did a really good job with growing a lot of our crops. Uh, and we were able to put in you know, giant red mustard, like Japanese mustard, we were able to put in 
carrots, we were able to put in beets, we were able to put in sunchokes, we were, or not sunchokes, sorry, sunflowers, we were able to put in corn, beans, squash, a ton of different stuff in that soil bank. Uh, and that gave me the chance to take the time to build soil elsewhere. Uh, it was a very small garden bed, uh, sorry, five garden beds, they were quite small space. I think it was in total 20 by 20 area. Uh, I wanted it to be a 20 by 50 area, but that was for next year. So I started working on the other 30 by 20 area and fixing that soil. How did I, how I did it can be how you did it. And that was very cheaply over a long period. Uh, it comes down to what your resources are and you got to be very creative with those resources. In my situation, I dug two foot deep trenches all over the property, long trenches that were snaking and winding like veins through the body of the ground. And I just, I just mounted up the soil that I was digging out, kept it right on the one side, preferably on the downhill side if you're on a gradient so it can catch water and act kind of like a swale for a little bit. And then I collected brush. We have a lot of brush on my property, a lot of buckthorn, a lot of locust, a lot of box elder, uh, a lot of different kinds of brush. This can be bamboo if you live down in the American Southeast. This can be twigs of all varieties of all kinds of woods. This can be really, you know, woody stock plants, whatever you got. And then when it was all lo loaded up, and I'm talking about stuff that was pinky thick all the way up to wrist thick, nice thick chunks of kindling, uh, no fuel logs really in there at all. And then I lit it all up piece by piece, just going down the line. As one area would start to burn up and turn to ash, I would hit it with water and I just continue lighting the next area and lighting the next area. And this took me a better part of a week and a half to do it all. And what I now had was a three to four inch thick bed, sometimes six inch thick bed of charcoal. Charcoal we've talked about in the past in the form of biochar. We're hoping to have a couple of really cool conversations in the near future about biochar and the production of biochar and the future of biochar for sustainability of all kinds for humankind and the planet. It's a beautiful way to sequester over 50% of the carbon of the trees that you're cutting, uh, sequestering it permanently in the ground. It does not leave, <clears throat> but it's also a big sponge for nutrients. And so what I then did was I noticed that this was lining up with the right time of year to put out a call to all fishermen, all people that are out going, my cousins and relatives that are going out spear fishing, people that are going out casting. And usually you end up with all these you know, fish heads, bones, guts, all this stuff that's getting put out into the bush, which can be very beneficial for the bush. But sometimes some of these guys don't really want to walk, you know, 20 feet into the woods. They'd rather just dump it on the side of the road. And this is across Canada. This is not just an indigenous thing. This is any people that go fishing and get a lot of fish. They just toss their guts and skins on the side of the road. And this encourages scavengers like raccoons, foxes, coyotes, domestic cats even, dogs to come out to the road and get that food and they get smoked by cars. Then you got vultures, ravens, crows, and jays also getting smoked by cars and it becomes this epidemic. If you have animal waste, fish guts, deer guts, rabbit guts, whatever you got from livestock or from wildlife that you've hunted, A, we need to take better care of that stuff. Take up as much of the edible viscera as you can, heart, lungs, kidneys, etc., liver, and consume them yourself or give them to people that will consume them or dehydrate them for treats for your dogs, whatever. The inedible get viscera we need to put further in the bush where it can benefit the ecology, but or we can do what I did. And that was I collected all these guts from all my neighbors and cousins. I put a big bucket at the end of my driveway and I went to social media and said, hey, everybody, uh, I've got a bucket at the end of my driveway. It's a big bucket, 40 gallon bucket. Fill it with all the fish guts. I know you guys are out fishing right now. Fill them with fish guts. And they did. And we continued to collect guts for over a week. 
and then we took all those guts and we would put them on top of all that charcoal and then cap it off with the clay rich soil that we have originally the native soil in our garden and now we had all these veins going throughout the whole property full of charcoal that was taking in all the nutrients from the rotting fish the phosphorus from the bones the potassium from the guts the the nitrogen from all the meat and and skins and everything else that's flesh oriented high nitrogen content and putting it into that charcoal all the while the charcoal is also getting inoculated by the natural native mycorrhizae in the soil because mushrooms love carbon and charcoal is mostly carbon and so we had this beautiful little arrangement happening in the soil like these veins these rivers going through the whole garden uh, the garden soil and every time you dig in like a year two three years later there's pockets of charcoal that you would find and you plant your shrubs you plant your vegetables plant your trees in there and now they've got all this beautiful biochar to move their roots through and grow within and over time as we move and dig that some and of course with the worms and everything else they're moving the soil up and down through that charcoal it's getting mixed in and mixed in and every year our soil gets richer and richer and richer can you, in an urban setting, burn brush in your backyard and make biochar? Probably not. You can get creative if you've got a charcoal barbecue. Uh, if you have a chiminea, if you have a wood stove in your house, you can collect that ash and, wood and charcoal, sift out the ash, use that as a top dressing uh, fertilizer, which is rich in potassium, to go on top of your plants, and then collect the charcoal to produce into biochar. Or you can go another route and buy lump charcoal from hardware stores it's not going to work the same way as true biochar and that's something that we've got to be very very clear here is this is not true blue biochar biochar is heated to a certain temperature for a certain amount of time to get a certain texture or certain density of the charcoal but charcoal at the end of the day is charcoal it will all work to one degree or another uh, that's why you see things online in garden centers which is called horticultural charcoal that is effectively biochar really fine pour open pour uh, charcoal you can do this with a high enough heat at home the the people of uh, Easter Island the people of the Amazon did this stuff quite a bit processing charcoal into large volume for biochar at home without modern-day kilns they can do it you can get by buying charcoal is not necessarily a great thing because you're spending money but if that's what you got, that's what you got. If you're in a fire ban area or you're not allowed to have a backyard fire or campfire or bonfire, then that's what you got to do. Or you got to have really, really, really cool neighbors that aren't going to report you to the fire department. I'm not recommending breaking laws, folks. I'm talking about community-driven decisions. That is a whole other level. I'm not talking about breaking federal laws or provincial laws or anything like that. I'm saying you've got to work with your community and talk to them and see what they agree upon because maybe they also want to start doing stuff with their soil. Maybe they want to have better tomatoes or better squash. you got to figure that out as a community. Talk to your neighbors. Neighbors are good people. It's good to have neighbors. If they say no or you don't have any legal way to do it, buying charcoal is the option. And the beautiful thing is the lump charcoal goes a long way because you only need... Like, depending on your soil, you need only like 2 to 5% carbon like in the form of biochar in that soil to really make things work. In certain conditions, it may have to go up towards of 10% of your soil bulk. That's fine too. This is just one option though. Charcoal is only one option. Another great option is compost. Compost is the key to a lot of soil amendments. <clears throat> compost is the building of soil. 
in to one degree or another. Now the three main components of, of soil are loam, which is humus or organic matter, sand and clay. Those are the three main components. Uh, the sand is coming from the from the mother stone or the mother rock at the bottom of the soil that's breaking down over time from erosion and natural ge uh, geological formations and geological movement. And that's where sand comes from. It's also coming from glaciers from thousands and thousands of years ago. Clay is another soil compound that is very common where I live. It's the problem with our property is it's mostly clay. And if I just mix in sand to try and get better drainage, I make concrete. It becomes very, very dense. It does not do what you think it's going to do. It makes things actually worse. The best thing for most soils that we need to do is add organic matter. The best ways to add organic matter is compost. I already talked about biochar and one way that you can do it. And again, we've talked about biochar multiple times on the show. When it comes down to composting, that is the number one option you've got to make a lot of stuff fast. And everybody has their own rules on the carbon to nitrogen ratio. I try to stick to a three to one. I know some people that do a 30 to one. And I know some people that go 50-50 where you have carbon to nitrogen. Hot rock compost that I have the best and thermophilic compost, which I have the best luck with where I am and what I really need because I want soil fast. The faster you go, the more nutrients you can lose. And that's something you got to be mindful of. And the more it's going to be bacterial rich and not micrologically rich or sorry, um, mycorrhizae rich. Um, only had one coffee today. Sorry, folks. The, the goal there is to figure out how much you want in nutrients and how much can you lose in nutrients in time. The longer it sits, the longer your compost sits around, the more mycorrhizae rich it'll be. And the more carbon density you add to that, the better it's going to be mycorrhizae speaking. That's going to be good for shrubs, for trees, for woody vines, things like that. So grapes, apple trees, hascap bushes, things like that. The more bacterially rich your, your compost is, the more beneficial it'll be towards annuals. Things like kale, things like tomatoes, things like uh, celery, cucumber, squash, corn. And so it all comes down to what you're trying to do. And there's a thousand and one ways to make compost and they all do different things. You can do what I do, which is make a giant compost mound, mostly out of straw and leaf litter. And then you add in lawn clippings, you add in food scraps, you add in manure, you add in everything you can to get that thing nitrogen dense and start getting it really, really hot. And I can make compost if I do my damnedest and I work at it, I can make compost in 20 to 30 days minimum. If I want it to take longer, I can let it take longer. I have the benefit of having ducks. And we've talked about them on Duckapalooza episode. We've talked about the ducks in other gardening episodes. Having livestock of any kind can help boost your compost and soil building. Uh, in one form, instead of doing compost at all, I have a lot of ch uh, wood chip in their pen, like about a foot deep in total now over the last four years. And the ducks walk all over it, poop all over it, eat on it, splash water around, and they add all those nutrients to that wood chip. And as it breaks down into soil, it becomes nutrient dense soil because the char, the, the charcoal, the wood chips are acting like basically what, uh, some folks in permaculture describe as a carbon diaper. If you have chickens, let's say you have a backyard chicken coop, you can throw in all your food scraps to your chickens and let them eat that and scratch that up and, and consume it and poop it out. And after a month, you have all this really rich compost at the bottom of their coop. And you scoop that all up, put it into a wheelbarrow, pour that through a sift, 
uh, and you sift out all the bigger chunks, throw that back into their pen, let them scratch away at it more, and you take all that real loamy, soft material that you got in the bucket or in your containers, and you use that as your compost. There's a dozen different ways, hundreds of different ways. Bokashi compost is another method that I've played around with. Ryan's played around with a little bit more than I have. Uh, basically, you add a yeast-rich uh, medium to a bunch of compost to a bunch of food scraps and this can be a whole lot of different kinds of food scraps and you're basically inoculating it with a yeast that is going to consume and consume and consume and after a few weeks of inoculating you then bury it in the garden and the yeast just continues to consume and consume and consume and break it down and after a month you scrape back the soil and there's no waste in there at all no onion uh, onion uh, skins no apple cores nothing it's just consumed there's a whole lot of other ways. You can also do desiccation. There's that uh, cute little composter that people are getting in their houses now that desiccates and dries out food scraps and blends it up into a powder. Uh, that's not true composting. That's desiccation. It's basically dehydrating it until it becomes powder. Nothing wrong with that. It works, but it's not true compost where you're letting mycorrhizae and bacteria and protozoa and worms and, and flatworms and stuff consume and break down everything into bioavailable compounds. Taking a cantaloupe and throwing it into the ground and burying it is not enough to get it to be bioavailable food for your plants, right? What's going to happen is you have inside, uh, not insects, sorry. Well, worms help with this. Um, they're not technically an insect, but anyways, I'm getting into the weeds here. No pun intended. You take your food scraps of whatever kind it is, and you're going to introduce them to microorganisms. And those microorganisms are going to consume those food scraps and poop out much more bioavailable manure at a microscopic level that is going to then feed your plants. So the more we can expose our compost to bacteria, protozoa, and other microorganisms, the better it's going to be. Sushi's not happy that there's a truck driving by. So when we talk about compost, it's all about breaking things down and rotting things down in a good way. There's anaerobic composting, there's aerobic composting, and there's a whole lot of other things in between. Anaerobic means without oxygen. Basically, you bury it down and seal it off and you don't let air get in there. Uh, this can be done under in barrels of water. This can be just simply a mound of really, really fine material that you don't turn. Uh, there's a whole lot of other ways to make things anaerobic and there's good and bad things regarding anaerobic breakdown It's not always a bad thing. You just got to know what you're doing with it uh, Aerobic composting is my preference for the most part. There are some methods that I do that are anaerobic um, Aerobic composting means you're turning the soil or having something aerate the soil for you aerate the compost. Sorry uh, One way I've done that when I'm doing mycorrhizae rich which needs the me to not break the, the, the compost up too often is I bury pipes uh, I get PVC pipes that I've drilled a bunch of holes through and I stick them into the compost, deep into the compost, and I mount my compost up around those pipes so that air and gas exchange can happen. And this is something I do when I'm making mycorrhizae-rich compost. And what that is usually done is what I refer to as cold rot compost. Low, slow temperatures, you're not trying to get it hot. You're wanting that fungal-rich breakdown of the so of the compost into soil. And I'm going to use things like leaf litter. I'm going to use things like wood chips. I'm going to use dense carbon material. And it's going to be very carbon-rich compost. And this is really good for trees, shrubs, woody plants in general. Uh, this is the stuff I put in around my apple trees, my oak trees, my hickory trees, my hazelnuts. When I'm planting them, I'm putting them in with buckets and buckets of that kind of compost. When I'm taking care of my 
annual garden and even like my my soft perennials things like horseradish things like um sunchokes the compost i put in there is going to be usually more bacterial rich which is thermophilic compost and that's where i'm going to be aerobically turning it on a regular basis adding more nitrogen to it on a regular basis and then letting it rest for a while the longer you can let it rest, the more it kind of gels, the more it kind of, it kind of chills and does its thing and develops into a much better soil. If you got to get it done fast, thermophilic is the answer. Just still realize that you should be aging it for at least a couple more weeks after you've got it up to temperature for a while. The main benefits of thermophilic compost is you're doing it at a high temperature, which means things break down quicker because the bacteria that live in high heat thrive and are much more aggressive at high heat temperatures. The other benefit of doing it with uh, thermophilic compost is the fact that it's heat temperatures, if you do it right, can kill off weed seeds. So any seeds that got into your compost from garden scraps, from lawn clippings, from weeding, get in and you literally cook and sterilize those seeds. There are some seeds that you're just not going to be able to do that to. Pumpkin seeds and squash seeds in general seem to survive a lot more in th uh, through thermophilic compost breakdown. Uh, so you're going to be want to be mindful of that when you're doing compost with the pumpkins from the uh, from the fall uh, or any food scraps like that. Uh, I've also noticed that peach pits and plum pits and such can still germinate afterwards uh, because they're just so dense and they got such a hard shell on them, which can be beneficial to some degrees if you want to grow peaches and plums. You can then cut those seeds open and remove uh, cut those pits open, remove the seeds after you've let them go through composting, which can be considered a form of stratification. We'll talk about that in a bit. So to me, thermophilic is the best option in my property because I need a lot of compost. I need a lot of compost fast and it's going to remove a lot of the weeds. We have some very invasive plants on my property. Garlic mustard, for example, purging buckthorn is another example. And the more we can break those seeds and damage those seeds before they can germinate, the better. So my compost, I try to keep it thermophilic for at least three to four weeks cooking off as much as possible, keeping it around 80 degrees Celsius, which is a quite high heat. Uh, 60 would be better. 60 degrees Celsius would be better in the long run uh, because you save more nitrogen. If you get it above 80 degrees Celsius, a lot of the nitrogen in your compost is going to gasify in the form of ammonia. And this can get really stinky. This can be very, very stinky. Uh, and that's why I got to turn it more frequently, add more carbon to it. My preferred carbon for uh, thermophilic compost piles is straw. Chopped straw, baled straw, whatever straw you can get. It seems to do a really good job of letting the water transfer through and letting air in and everything else while also being dense enough in carbon that it's going to soak up a lot of that nitrogen and not let it escape in the form of ammonia. I watch my compost mounds and compost piles and compost pits like a hawk. And I'm, I've got compost going right now. As we're speaking, it's mid-December, uh, we've got a, like a week away before it's the winter holidays, and I have compost going at 140 degrees Fahrenheit as we speak, which is not a very high temperature. That's around 60, 65 degrees Celsius, I believe. Like, I can't remember my Fahrenheit to Celsius right off the top of my head. Maybe I should actually look this up real quick. Yeah, I just checked it. Uh, the, the 145 is around 62 degrees, which is just fine for a low pasteurizing temperature of killing off any seeds that are in the waste. Uh, perfect, perfect temperature in my opinion. And we've been keeping it consistent for three weeks now. 
And in another few days, as it gets below 145 degrees Fahrenheit or 60 degrees Celsius, 62 degrees Celsius, sorry, when it drops down to about 60, I'm going to turn the compost again and add a bunch of old spent coffee grinds. I'm going to add a whole bunch of brand new fresh compost waste, kitchen waste into that mound, turn it one more time, cover it up again, and let it cook again one more time to kill off anything in there. And then I'm going to let it rest for the rest of the winter. I'm going to start a whole new compost pile right after. You can compost right down to minus 40 if you have enough mass. And that mass comes from carbon-rich material. So if I'm starting a compost mound in January, and I know it's going to get down to minus 30 this winter, that pile is going to be more than a meter, a cubic meter. Everybody talks about making sure that your mound is at least a cubic meter. I'm talking about minimum a cubic three meters, three cubic meters minimum. I want this pile to be higher than I am tall, wider than I am tall, deeper than I am than I am tall. That is the key to keeping it hot through the winter time. And the outside is going to get frozen. It's going to get cold. And it's going to get full of frost. And when that happens, when we get to the next stage of turning, we add more nitrogen-rich food to it, <clears throat> coffee grinds, kitchen waste, and you want to put a lot in, like two, three, five-gallon buckets at a time to make sure there's enough food and nitrogen in there for the bacteria to keep everything hot for a while. I turn it once a week, and I make sure there's a ton of straw, a ton of straw, like five, six bales worth of straw in there at the beginning. And I keep adding on every time I turn, I add another half a bale. The benefit for me is I have livestock that live in the straw. I have ducks. Those ducks are pooping in the straw, so they're already inoculating with a lot of nitrogen-rich uh, manure. And then when it goes onto the compost pile again and again each week, that's because I'm adding new straw to their coop, and I'm taking out some of the old straw, and I'm always leaving a little bit behind to keep everything kind of like micrologically rich. We also do deep litter in the wintertime, which means that come midwinter, I'm going to stop removing any straw from their coop, and I'm going to let it build up and build up and build up, and that's going to generate its own heat, especially because I'm introducing lacto, uh, lactobacillus acidifus bacteria LAB for short, uh, to their bedding. And that's going to help them keep uh, bacteria and infections down. It's going to keep them healthy. It's going to keep the deep litter compost healthy, deep litter bedding healthy for them. And then when it goes on the compost pile, it's already uh, rich and inoculated with LAB, which is going to increase the value of fermentation in the compost and breaking everything down nice and clean. What else can I do? Let's say we only have a small amount of compost because you only have a small space on your property. Let's say you have one of those little compost bins that you turn with a little uh, with a little crank. You don't have a lot of room there out there for a big compost pile to do a big, big thermophile compost. Well, kitchen scraps, worms, all that kind of stuff can go into one of those compost bins. You can do vermicomposting in a couple of Rubbermaids with some holes and some creativity. And you can have that in your house. You can have a vermicompost or worm composting bin in your kitchen. It doesn't make any smell if you do everything right. Look into vermicomposting. It's a great option. I'm a huge proponent on vermicomposting and what it can do. It's incredible stuff. What you can then do is take some of that compost in a little cheesecloth bag, or they even have like brewing bags for this, and you're going to do what's called compost or weed tea. Compost tea is something that's great to do in the summertime. It's a little bit more challenging to do in the wintertime, but since most of us are going to be letting our beds rest in the winter, it's not such a big deal. So you're going to take your kitchen scraps that are in your worm bin or in a compost pile wherever you get it, and you're going to fill up about three to four scoops of your compost to this sealable bag. It's water porous. And then you're going to put it into a bucket. This bucket can be a five-gallon pail. This bucket can be a 55-gallon drum. It can be whatever size you want it to be. If you really want to, you can take... 
you know, like a garbage bag worth of compost into these bags and put them in a swimming pool. It'll work as long as there's no chlorine in the, in the pool water. Whatever you want, whatever size you want, the sky's the limit on this. The benefit of what's going to happen is you're now going to put a bubbler in there that's going to aerate the water so it doesn't go anaerobic. And you're going to be moving all these nutrients through the water, steeping for at least 24 hours. I like to steep it for about 36 to 48 hours when possible, but minimum 24 hours will work. And I'm going to be watching it grow. And I'm going to see foam happening on the surface a little bit, just a little bit of foam. And then after the 36 hour to 45, 48 hour mark or the 24 hour mark, depending if you're trying to do it fast, I'm going to add one whole carton, like a liter of unsulfured molasses, a bunch of molasses. If you don't have molasses, maple syrup works, brown sugar works. Uh, those are more expensive than molasses in the long run. And they're also more tasty. I'm not a big fan of molasses. <clears throat> when you see me buying molasses at a grocery store, it's usually me taking that molasses to feed something and uh, feed something micrologically. This is going to be a food source for the bacteria that are now in that water, in that compost tea. And you're going to feed them that molasses and let it go for another day or so. The longer you can leave it, the better. Uh, some people say, let it go until no more foam is showing. I think that that's a little far, uh, but it seems to work for them. So I'm not saying it doesn't work. Now you're going to just take your watering can, scoop water out of that compost tea and irrigate your crops with it, water your crops with it. And that's going to inoculate the soil. It's going to feed them really micrologically rich compost, nutrient rich water. It's a great way to do it. If you're trying to, you know, better your soil, there's so many different ways you can do it on the budget and sometimes even free. One of my favorite things to do is for my tomatoes, my blueberries, and for a few other acid-loving plants is I'm going to take all the eggshells I can over one month, roast them to sterilize them, grind them in a food processor into pulp, like as fine a powder as possible. I'll even sift them to get the bigger shells, uh, shell pieces out and just have almost like a dust. Then I put that into a bucket and I top it with vinegar. It could be apple cider vinegar. It could be... Tracker, why are you crying, buddy? You just went for a big run. Why are you crying? Anyways, it could be vinegar, uh, all kinds of vinegars. Apple cider vinegar is great. White vinegar is what I usually end up using, like distilled white vinegar. And then I'm just going to pour it and top it up. And you're going to see that classic, you know, vinegar and baking soda volcano effect happening. It's going to smell real funky. And it's going to go and go. I'm going to leave it for 35, 40 minutes. And then I strain that and I give all that pulp to my ducks as a grit. They chew that up. They use it to help not chew it up. They, their, their gizzard chews it up. And it helps them digest their food and it's very, very rich for them, high in calcium, everything else. The liquid, though, then gets diluted about one to ten in vinegar to water. And I again irrigate the crops, spraying it mostly at the roots. And the acidity that is left behind, because there will be some acidity left, although it has been fairly neutralized on the pH scale because it's hitting that calcium-rich eggshell. It's getting calcium into the soil, it's getting the vinegar into the soil, the acidity in the soil, it's watering the plants. All these beautiful things. If you don't have enough magnesium in the soil, you can have problems with your crops because they may not be able to uptake nutrients like calcium, which is going to help them from getting blossom end rot and a bunch of other infections and infestations and things like that. Remember that the unhealthier your plants are, the more prone they are to disease and pests. So the healthier we can keep them by having good soil amendments, the better likelihood we're going to have of winning over pests and infections. <clears throat> so for me... I want to increase their benefits. So in that case, what I'll then do is just before I pour that compost tea 
or I pour that uh, calcium, that, that eggshell and vinegar mix onto them, I add one or two tablespoons of Epsom salts. Epsom salts are cheap. Epsom salts are available in hardware stores. They're available in, in health stores. They're available in, sh in drug marts or pharmacies, grocery stores, all kinds of places. And you can find them for fairly cheap. <clears throat> and what is rich in is magnesium. Epsom salts is magnesium sulfate. This is something that is going to help you up, uh, help your plants uptake nutrients. The calcium cannot go up there on its own without magnesium. And if your plants and your soil are depleted of magnesium, the less likely they're going to be able to uptake nutrients and minerals. So we want to add a little bit of uh, magnesium to it. And the best way to do that, in my opinion, that's cheap and affordable for gardens, as Tracker makes a nest out of my jacket. Uh, is specifically through Epsom salts. And it can be very small amounts, like a tablespoon or two for every five gallons of liquid you're adding to it. Some people add Epsom salts to their compost. Other people add gypsum to their compost. Other people add sand and stuff to their compost. I don't bother because it's going to get mixed in by the bugs and the worms and the plants themselves when they're in the soil. And so as we go and go and go, you can keep adding and adding and adding. <clears throat> I had one, per, uh, the one time when we rescued i do plant rescues like i'll go to a nursery later in the season and find like jalapenos and habaneros and plants that people just didn't pick up and they're wilted they're damaged they're old they're they're weak and i feel bad for them i'm like that person that goes to the pound every week and tries to adopt a new animal and i buy those plants at discount and i bring them home and then i treat them i put them basically into a little mini greenhouse uh i do a basically that hoop greenhouse i was talking about earlier and I feed them just nutrients. I don't give them any new soil. All the, all the irrigation they get is nutrient-dense irrigation of compost tea, magnesium, calcium, all that kind of stuff. When I first started off, before we had the ducks, I had a garden. And I, needed to, and I had all these plants that were calcium-depleted or calcium-deficient. And so I took a carton of Tums, like the antacids, ground them up in a coffee grinder, to diluted that in water and made this like gray sludge. And I poured it all over these plants roots i soaked them in this stuff and then put them back into fresh compost and soil and within about two weeks they were big and leafy they were nice and healthy and i just kept taking care of them that way and that's a cheap way to get crops you're going to have a little later harvest i often experience you're going to get about a, you're going to be about a month behind everybody else but if you go after the main harvest of crops from greenhouses and nurseries you can find stuff for dirt cheap and bring it home. And as long as you're planting long-term stuff, especially with your perennials, who cares? My blueberry bushes were planted in July of 2021, not in May. They were planted in July because I wasn't expecting to get fruit from them that year anyways. As long as they got taken care of, they were going to be good. I had jalapenos, habaneros, Fresno peppers, all these kinds of peppers that I got in total. I think I gathered like... 40 plants and i think i spent 40 bucks at the nursery in the early july because they were just trying to get rid of their stuff at that point so you can do that for cheap as well i'm kind of jumping ahead from soil amendments but this is like where we use the soil amendments with those plants on a budget you can use urine the usda states that as long as you're not concerned about the pharmaceuticals that could be coming out of your kidneys and bladder from your body and from consumption of medication and from other foods uh and you're not concerned about your health in the regards of viruses specifically, uh, urine can be used as a fertilizer. And so what we do with urine is we collect it. We collect large amounts of urine, which is going to be very dense in potassium, uh, very dense in nitrogen, 
fairly dense as well in, in phosphorus, but not as much as it is in potassium and nitrogen. And we collect buckets of it. And <laughs> it sounds weird, I know. What we mostly do is we fill buckets with charcoal and then we leave one beside the compost pile with a lid off. And when people come over to visit and they say, do you mind if I take a leak? I'll be like, yeah, there's a bucket over there, pee in it. And as soon as we see that charcoal floating, we seal the lid and put it aside and put another bucket of charcoal out. And that charcoal is going to absorb, just like we were talking about earlier with biochar, it's going to absorb a ton of that nutrients and inoculate itself with that nutrient so that it's ready to go into the soil, not rob the soil of any other nutrients. Because uh, that's the one downside to most carbon is it's going to absorb for a while before it's ready. So if you can put it in preloaded with nutrients, whether you put the charcoal into compost or you urinate on it and keep it soaking in urine for weeks on end, whatever, put it in the soil. It's not going to rob the soil of any nutrients. Your plants are going to thrive immediately. I have on many occasions peed into a watering can and then topped it up with water to dilute everything and then just watered my crops. You may not want to do this with your root vegetables, but things like tomatoes, peppers, uh, fruit trees, fruit bushes, they're going to do just fine. You may not want to pee on your carrots and you may not want to pee on your beets and potatoes, but it's also not harmful if your body is healthy. And you may want to check into who's peeing into your piss buckets. Um, there's a whole bunch of questions there that you can get into, but I'm not going to dive into that too much right now. I'm just saying that there's a lot of a very affordable ways to get nutrients into the soil. Uh, compost is your number one friend and you can compost anything. You can compost literally anything. I will argue anyone to the cows come home that you can compost anything. One of the things that people don't like composting is animals. They don't like composting meat and fat and bones. I do. And I make sure it's in thermophile compost and I bury them right in the middle so that it gets heated up really fast and destroys any pathogens. That's my biggest concern of any compost is pathogens for the plants or for me. So I put that stuff right in the center and cook the crap out of that. Kill it as, kill any pathogens that could be in there until it's consumed. And I've put whole fish, and I mean like full salmon that I found the sides of the river dead, buried in a, in a, in a compost pile. And that compost pile jumped up real hot for the next five to six days. And then when I go to turn the compost, there's not even fish bones to find. I might find the skull, but I'm not going to find the fish bones. And that to me shows I'm doing a good job in there. I've thrown quail that died uh, from injuries or infections. I've put in ducks that we couldn't consume. They got attacked by and killed by a fox and we didn't know how far the damage was. We just didn't want to consume it. We buried them in the compost. And the next year when I sift out the compost, I find all these bones. We collect some for educational purposes, but the rest I just take them under a hammer and just crush them into powder and throw them back in the compost and let them break down even further. This is going to increase potassium. This is going to increase phosphorus. This is going to, this is going to increase uh, magnesium and calcium and proteins and nitrogen and all this other stuff is going to be in the compost. Other things that people don't think about composting. I live here on Rice Lake uh, in just south of Peterborough and we have massive, massive yields of seaweed. Invasive Eurasian milfoil, water dragon, all that kind of stuff drifts up, breaks up from the waves and flows to the shore. And by early to mid-June, we have massive piles of stinking, rotting seaweed. I have gone down and brought back 20 or 30 wheelbarrow loads from the lake to my house. And usually I don't recommend transporting these seaweeds because if they get dispersed into new bodies of water, you've, you've introduced an invasive species. I live 50 meters from the shoreline where these are coming from. 
if they get out of my property and back into the water, they're back in the water where this came from. I'm not concerned about that. Be mindful of where you're getting your stuff when regards to seaweed. Seaweeds can be very cool because they can be very mineral dense plants and they can rot very, very quickly and they have a high water content. We've used them strictly as a mulch where we put in like a foot thick of seaweed around our plants and that has helped retain moisture in the soil. That's helped protect the plants from uh, overheating of their roots from the sun. And we've also just composted. And one of the best composts that we ever did for our trees was something that Ryan put together where he put down about six inches of wood chip, covered that with 12 inches of seaweed, covered that with 10 inches or 12 inches of, of wood chip, 12 inches of seaweed, and basically made a lasagna pile and then covered that with a tarp and we left it for the entire summer cooking in under that tarp, got real hot and then cooled down real rapidly. And when we came out, we had this amazing mulchy, pulpy, compost that we just sifted and put it onto the trees and they exploded in size the next growing season it was amazing absolutely amazing beyond compost and urine and fish guts there's other things you can do wood chip mulch straw mulch if i'm growing crops that are annuals i usually put a bed of straw on top of them a big bale of straw about three to four inches thick around them especially things like corn squash beans i put down a lot of that same with our sunchokes uh, if i'm growing wheat or rye uh, i do the same thing i put down mulch around them to help keep that soil nice and cool keep it thermoregulated this is also going to reduce water loss by a great deal uh, mulching alone can uh, can contain a great deal of water in the soil and the more you encourage long-term permaculture and perennial plant growth the more water gets retained by those plants so Mulch on top of my annuals is going to usually be straw. And then on top of my perennials, like my shrubs, my trees, my even my uh, horseradishes, things like that, I put down wood chip. And I get wood chip for free. As can you if you have arborists in your area. Contact all your arborists and say like, hey, if you're cutting trees in this region, I've got a spot you can dump on a driveway all your wood chip. All your wood chip. The first year that we did that, I reached out to one dude, uh, Joe, the arborist is what I'm going to call him. And I reached out to him and said, Hey, I know that you live in the Keene area and I have a garden and I'm looking for wood chip. And in three days, he dumped well over five ton of wood chip on my property. And we used every ounce of it. We covered the entire property with a wood chip where the ducks were, where the trees were, where the shrubs were, everything got wood chip. That was just under four years ago. And every year we add at least another six inches of wood chip. So far we've created four inches to five inches of dark soil, dark organic rich soil on top of our clay bed, which means now we're able to grow a lot of things where we couldn't grow them before because the mulch slowly breaks down over time from getting saturated from rain, ducks pooping and, and bathing themselves on top of it all that kind of stuff, animals walking on it, us walking on it, mushrooms growing through it. Uh, I grow wine caps, also known as King Strafaria, also known as the garden giant mushrooms. They're a beautiful, delicious mushroom with a beautiful maroon colored cap on them. We grow them in garden, uh, literally wood chip beds. And then we surround those beds with wood chip and allow the King Strafaria to spread its mycorrhizae throughout the garden. And it's breaking down wood chip, consuming the wood chip into its own food source and converting that wood chip into soil. It's doing an amazing job. We have logs 
inoculated with oyster mushrooms, shiitake mushrooms, chicken of the woods mushrooms, hen of the woods mushrooms, all over the property. And over several years, those logs rot. And then we break them up, spread that out into a new mulch around the garden through the forest. We use them as what's sometimes referred to as nurse logs, uh, where we lay them perpendicular to the water drainage. And then we throw a bunch of leaf litter against them on the uphill side and it catches water and acts like an above ground um, swale. And so as water comes down, it hits that log that's really rotted and decayed and it catches that water and guides it down with gravity into the soil, helping fix and set water into our groundwater and keep it on the property for longer. The longer you can keep water on your property, the less irrigation you got to do, the less watering you got to do because the water is there already. So using those mushroom logs as nurse logs and then putting fresh logs against them, they can actually spread their mushroom to those fresh logs, those freshly cut logs, and can continue to move. These are things that can be done very inexpensively because you're using wood on your property already or wood that you found. Uh, maybe your, your neighbor, again, with arborists and stuff, you were able to collect some of these logs and put them on your property and use them in that way. Uh, the wood chip is free because the arborists have to dump it. And usually when they dump it, they got to pay for it. So often they have near their pro, near their office or their work job, their, their job space, they have just a giant amount of wood chip because they don't want to pay for it. And they just don't, they don't want to pay for dumping it. And they don't know what else to do. You as a gardener are now friends with an arborist and that arborist can keep dumping wood chip at your property whenever they're in your area, whenever it's convenient for them to dump it. And the more of us reach out to arborists, the more likely they're going to say yes. And the more they're going to be willing to dump wood chip to everybody. And they're going to have all these options to spread wood chip all over the region. And that's going to benefit everybody. Other ways to get free materials, dumpster diving at grocery stores, if it's legal in your area and they're comfortable with it, uh, kitchen scraps from restaurants. One of my favorite things to do is go to all these coffee shops in the region and say, what days do you throw out your co your coffee grinds? Like when are you, when is your dumpster day? Can I come the day before and gather up all your coffee grinds? And I use those coffee grinds on my mushrooms. I use those coffee grinds in my vermicomposting and I use those coffee grinds in my thermophilic composting. And they're very good for boosting the heat and boosting up the nitrogen content in your compost and getting it really, really cooking fast and hard and producing a great deal of nutrients. I go to all the grocery stores. I go to the butchers. I go to everybody and say, hey, I'll take your 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 waste. Give me all your waste. And we go out and gather that all up. Fall time, I drive around with friends in pickup trucks and, we, and trailers and we gather all the leaf litter bags from people's yards. And we go through them, make sure there's no like bags of dog poop or anything like that in there. And we just get that leaf mold and we make mounds of leaf mold. And we just encourage that leaf mold to break down. And that becomes new soil that we can spread out and mulch as well. Uh, around all of my leeks and uh, hopness, hopness, yeah, um, ground nuts, all my native uh, perennial plants that we're trying to encourage and develop and grow stronger and healthier every year. I put down leaf litter from oak leaves, maple leaves, everything I can, because that's what the natural ecology is around them. They grow under the canopy of the maple sugar bushes. And so when I can put down leaf litter around them, I'm giving them their original indigenous soils and they can grow in that and thrive in that. And that costs me gas. It costs me gasoline to drive the vehicles around and do that kind of stuff. Often I have friends who have neighbors who have tons of leaf bags and they're coming down to visit and they'll be just pick them up and bring them with them. Perfect. That's perfect. That's they're coming down anyways to visit. Bring it with you. All these kinds of steps that we can take to strengthen our soil 
is going to give us huge yields of success later. Now let's talk about filling those garden beds that we built. We built garden beds that are 4 by 8 or 10 by 12 or whatever. You built them out of cinder blocks. You built them out of concrete blocks. You built them out of tires. You built them out of scrap wood, whatever. The first layer, I think I talked about this before, the first layer is going to be mostly really rotted wood and wood chips and things like that that can break down slowly over time. We want to make sure that they're already pre-rotted, long-term rot. Then the next quarter that we add in there is going to be um, composted, composting things. So things that are already starting to break down but may not be fully composted. This can be leaf litter. This can be bedding from your animal's bedding. So straw, pine, uh, wood shavings, whatever. Put that all in on top of that. And you're going to pack that all down, water it heavily, try to get it to settle as much as possible. The very top layer is going to be your actual soil. How can we get cheap soil? especially if we have only just started our composting and we've got like a good pile of compost, but not enough to fill all of our beds. You go to most garden centers and most hardware stores in the summertime, big box and springtime, gardening time. You go to the garden centers of these places and you're going to see a whole bunch of different bags of soil. One of them is often just simply strict topsoil and it is the cheapest bag there is. Uh, I have filled garden beds for $20 with this topsoil. And what I do with that is I treat that with soil amendments before I put it in there. And I do it this time of year when po if possible, in the fall. Fall into early winter is the perfect time to build your garden beds because you let everything kind of get wet and jive and, and cook and do its thing. Just like we did about with our garden bed talk earlier, you're going to be doing this with topsoil mixes at the very, very surface. I take it into a wheelbarrow, I throw one bag of topsoil, then I throw in a whole big pile of compost, I throw in a little bit of sand, I throw in a little bit of clay, whatever I've got around, I'm going to throw in all the stuff I can and mix that all up and make sure it's all finely mixed and, and carefully mixed. And then I cover. I pour that in the garden bed and then I do that again and again and again until the bed is filled. The key here is to make sure that all of that topsoil is what's going to be needed for the plants. You have to have everything that the plants need in that topsoil. Everything below is going to be slowly breaking down, rotting, becoming new soil later. But for now, what we need to think about is what the plants are going to need immediately when you put them in the ground in the spring. And so this is where we put in that compost mix that we were talking about with the topsoil. This is where we put in you know, biochar that's been broken down, crushed up. You want it about quarter inch thick or smaller. The finer it is, the quicker it can actually break, and not necessarily break down because the carbon itself doesn't break down, but the easier it is for the porosity of that to absorb nutrients and give back nutrients to roots and to microbes and everything else. This is when you're going to throw in uh, urine. This is when you're going to throw in whatever amendments you think your soil needs for the crops you're going to grow. If you're growing fairly acidic crops, urine, uh, the calcium mix with vinegars that I was talking about earlier, the eggshell mix, all those kinds of things can be top dressed on top and they're going to soak into that soil, mix in with that soil and they're going to also make sure that the nutrients isn't, uh, isn't uh, extracted. Everything below that's rotting, as it first begins to rot, is going to rob nutrients. It'll eventually give those nutrients back but for the first little while it won't. And so if we can overload the area with a lot of amendments, we can A, prevent that robbing of soil of nutrients, but also make sure that the things rot faster. So nitrogen, which is going to be mostly gathered from, in this situation, trying to keep it cheap, urine. Urine is going to be rich in nitrogen, uh, human urine is going to be rich in nitrogen, potassium, and a lot of phosphorus. It's really good with all those things. 
And so dumping that in by the gallon, by the five gallon buckets. If you're saving urine, this is the time of year to pour it in. Right now, when you finish building the beds, midwinter, early winter, late fall, put it all in there. Urine, fish emulsion, which is the rotting of fish in a specific way to gather up as much nutrients as possible. Um, seaweed, all those things that we talked about earlier. Compost teas, if you make a huge amount of it this time, before this time of year begins and your beds are built, you overload the beds with all that stuff and the biochar, the rotting wood, the wood chip is going to hold on to all that. <coughs> Excuse me. And when you, uh, when you plant your plants in the spring, it'll all have broken down enough that is bioavailable and also the rotting material below is going to do its job. This is inspired by Hugel culture and this is inspired by Terra Preta, which are two very similar concepts done in different ways. Hugel culture is the building up of mounds and the mounds can be done traditionally with very rotted wood covered with brush, covered with leaf litter, covered with soil or compost. I've done it for growing tobacco. I've done it for growing tomatoes and squash. It works very well for them. It does best with perennials. So if you're growing berry bushes, if you're growing uh, nut bushes like hazelnuts, if you're growing, um, you know, long-term plants, like uh, even like things like, again, your horseradishes, any plants that keep coming back year after year, they're going to benefit most from hugel culture as well as terra preta, though terra preta can work really well for annuals as well. We have a small terra preta bed. We have a small pile of hugel culture on the property. The hugel culture was again used for mostly for squash and a few other plants. The terra preta, it has asparagus growing in it, Canada wild chive, uh, domestic chives, and then every year we add a few different plants to it. Uh, we also have a few Japanese quince in there, all of which are benefiting from having a pit filled with charcoal, load up with dead fish and animal bedding and as much manure and stuff as possible, terracotta pots shattered and broken up into potsherd, all that thrown into a pit and sealed, which is a more complex level of what we were talking about earlier where I said I just lay trenches down, dig up the trenches, fill them with charcoal, put a bunch of rotting fish on top and bury them. They're all basically terra preta to one degree or another. The real terra preta beds that we've built are like four feet deep, eight to 10 feet wide or to eight to 10 feet long and about three feet wide filled up with a ton of charcoal filled up with a ton of terra preta shattered up terra preta pots which allow off gas they allow oxygen exchange water exchange in the soil they also help harbor certain bacteria that won't be harbored inside of the uh charcoal so all that in there with and i in one of them we threw in like a bunch of rotted semi-molded um uh, grains that had gotten damaged in a flood. We had a bag of grain in the house, in the basement. We had a spring flood, took all that, ripped it open, poured it into the charcoal pit and created all this terra preta. And the quinces have tripled in size in less than a year. An incredible amount of growth in, uh, since the beginning of planting. All that can be done very, very cheaply. If you're growing in the ground and if you're not growing in the ground, if you don't have the soil fat and you're just doing garden beds, then you do that same thing in the garden beds. You fill it up with rotting material, uh, rotted logs, wood mulch, whatever you got, put that all down, put a bunch of rotting material on top of it, uh, mix it together if you want, throw a bunch of charcoal in there if you can. And then again, you cover that with soil and that soil is the main thing. We got to figure out how to build that soil. The cheapest way is to just get soil from your property. The next cheapest way is to go to, as I said, big box stores and buying the cheapest bags and using as using it as sparingly as possible. 
just to make sure there's a good clay and soil mix in there with the compost. When you start building up a lot of compost and taking compost very seriously, you can build a lot of soil. Like I said in, uh, earlier in this episode and in previous episodes, we average about 2,000 pounds of compost a year. That sounds really impressive until you realize that that is not a lot of cubic yards. Cubic yardage is the goal here. You want to get as much soil built as possible. And so compost everything. Start a composting initiative in your neighborhood. Uh, work with community gardens. All those kinds of options. That's another option for those that live in urban areas. If you don't have the space for your own garden, look into urban gardening, uh, gardening initiatives and see if there's community gardens in your area. And then you can, you know, some of them have a pay to, to play kind of thing. Other people, uh, other community gardens have just simply you have to uh, exercise X amount of hours of community time in the community garden, like weeding, composting, etc. Some of them are just like, if you want to garden here, garden here. Look into them, talk to the folks, build your relationships. Like I said, build up with your neighbors because it's more about community than anything else when it comes down to long-term success with gardens. Um, people often go into the lone wolf mindset on everything and gardens just don't work that way. And that's really going to come into play when we start talking about ways to get crops, which is the next thing we're going to talk about. So getting into our crops you can be very cheap, if not free, with your crops. You can do very good job keeping it very affordable, if not completely free. It all comes down to how you are creative to get them. As we dive into this, there's the option of going into grocery store scraps. So when I get ginger root, when I get garlic, when I get horseradish, when I get onions, lettuce, celery, so many different produce, I take off the growing part of that plant and I immediately start to encourage it to take root whether it's a celery base or the top of an of a carrot or whatever. I'm trying to encourage them to grow again and try to make them grow back. Horseradish is famous for this. In fact, it's not just famous, it's infamous because it's a non-native and fairly aggressive invasive. And I'm telling you from experience here, uh, I grew one horseradish plant in a container and the container happened to have five drainage holes at the bottom. And at one point I moved that container and I didn't realize that the roots had grown through the uh, those drainage holes into the ground. And when I broke it off, all five became new horseradish plants. And I was like, well, that's not good. So I dug down and chopped them out and I used the horseradish to make fire cider and horseradish sauce and everything else. Cause I freaking love horseradish. It's one of my favorite uh, condiments. It's one of my favorite ingredients in food is horseradish. And I missed a few pieces of the roots. And like, if you go to the grocery store and you buy a horseradish tuber, you buy a whole root of horseradish, you cut that into 10 pieces and stick them in the ground, you will have 10 horseradishes. Guaranteed. It's almost a no-brainer plant. Like, it's one of the easiest to do this with. And that's kind of the problem, is it can become very aggressively invasive if you don't keep an eye on it. And so what we've done over the years is I'll go out and I do two things with my horseradish. First off, I eat as much of it as possible and I keep it contained on my property. I don't let it spread. I don't encourage it spread. I keep one main horseradish plant in the middle of the garden. And every time I find new ones popping up anywhere else, I rip them out of the ground carefully. I dig all the way down as deep as I can and pull the whole root up. Most of the time. Because sometimes I do something else with it. And I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, and this is going back to soil amendment. Um... Your crops can also help you with your soil amendments. Some people talk about daikon radishes being able to break open hard packed soil. They've never done been able to do jack squat on my property because of how thick the soil is or how dense the, uh, the clay is in the soil. 
But the good news is, there's other plants that can do that too. One of them being comfrey. Comfrey is famous for being a soil amender. Uh, it's got a long taproot that can grow deep into the soil. And you can take it and you can take its leaves and put them directly on the soil as a, as a chop and drop method of mulching. Or you can even just take them and compost them. And they bring up a lot of nutrients and minerals from the bottom of the soil, deep in the, uh, in the soil, bring them up to their leaves. And now the leaves are being composted to release those minerals and nutrients into your compost or into your soil. <coughs> Pardon me. That does not have to be comfrey. And I know a lot of people are like praising and worshiping comfrey and comfrey is the answer to all problems. It's not the only one that does that. Any plant that has a long taproot and big leaves is doing the exact same thing. So if you have greater burdock in your area, they're doing the same thing. Greater burdock is a non-native, fairly invasive plant. I have on average every year between 50 to 200 of them on my property. And so what I do out through, through the entire growing season is I chop all their leaves off and drop them. And I just keep coming back. Every time I see those leaves starting to come out again, I chop them and I drop them. Or I chop them all, gather them all up and put them in my compost. This past June, I did it once and I gathered over 200 pounds of burdock leaf and they went into the compost pile. And I pulled out at least 15 pounds of horseradish leaf and put them in the compost pile. All those long taproot plants with big leaves are doing the same thing comfrey does. You don't have to spend money to get comfrey. You can just get the native plant, uh, sorry, not the non-native the non plants that are being a problem in your garden and let them do the same work. Because what's gonna eventually happen is as you keep chopping those roots uh, of their leaves, the roots eventually die, right? They eventually die. And as they die, they decay and they create organic matter in that thick, dense clay. So now I've got this, let's say two foot burdock root deep into the ground. Sometimes they can get as far as five or six feet in the right conditions. We let them go down that far and then we chop all the leaves off, chop all the stalks off. And when they try to send up new shoots, we chop them off and they send up new shoots, we chop them off. They send up new shoots, we chop them off. They send up new shoots, we chop them off. And eventually the plant just says, I can't do this anymore. I don't have enough energy left and it dies. Now we have two to six feet of organic matter veining down into the soil right and it's all going to rot and that's going to start to break up soil if i have 50 to 200 on a two acre property that's a lot of organic matter in the dirt right and then all those leaves are going to compost which is going to go on top of that dense clay you see what i'm getting at here and so when we look at these plants they're not just a crop for the food that they can provide they can be a crop for the soil we're trying to build so think about it. Burdock being a quote unquote wild food or wild plant is effectively a, a feral variety of Japanese gobo. And if you look up any gobo recipes, G-O-B-O -O recipes, you'll realize burdock has a lot of uses. It's a really good root vegetable. And so it can be an invasive weed on your property or it's a free vegetable that can also build soil. So it's your choice in how you look at it. Onions, carrots. I already talked about ginger earlier with my friend who takes ginger root, puts them into that little cool little planter on their on their table throughout the summertime, and then they bring it into the in the fall. You can do the same thing with peppers and tomatoes. They can be brought in in the fall, gone in dormancy, and then in the spring bring them back out and bring them back to life, and they'll grow faster and produce more fruit, aka tomatoes or or peppers. And you benefit from that.
looking at those scraps from the from the kitchen from the from the grocery store when we look at fruits we can gather seeds from those fruits whether they're cherries tomatoes blueberries plums peaches i have plum trees growing on my property that came from plum pits from the grocery store i have uh, blueberry bushes growing on my property that came from blueberry seeds from the grocery store i have apples and cherries a lot of cherries growing on my property that we germinated from seeds from the grocery store. So if we think about our grocery bill also being a way to get stock of crops, it's worth doing it. Now, not all grocery store produce can do this kind of stuff, so you gotta do your own research on how to do it. There's a great book on growing trees from seeds, and I believe that's the actual title of the book, uh, and that's where I learned how to split the cherry pit and split the plum pits and get the seed, the actual true seed germ out of it. That's a great way to do it. Now, another way of getting fruit trees and, and nut trees and trees in general on your property, if you're going to go for a full food forest, hell, throw in sugar bush in there, like a maple, uh, sugar maples, throw in nut trees like oaks and hickories. All those can be brought into this concept through cuttings. Uh, we've done a lot of cuttings. Cuttings are basically the removal of certain branches from the trees and then stimulating those cuttings to grow roots and become a new tree. They're a clone. Now, the first thing I'm going to mention here is you want to make sure that when you're doing cuttings, you're doing it properly. Learn how to do proper cuttings. This is similar to grafting, but it's not the same thing. You're Instead of taking a cutting from one plant and basically joining it to another plant in the form of like apple tree grafts or pear tree grafts or citrus grafts, you're taking that cutting and you're making it become brand new tree by making it encourage root development. So this can be stuff that you got to study. This is the, uh, I watched a lot of videos and I read a lot of books and I even took a cuttings class uh, on the subject from a homesteading school. Um, and I studied and worked with other people who are learning how to be arborists and learning how to do different things in this way and people that do e ecological uh, restoration. And so we... My biggest recommendation is don't just listen to this podcast and go out with a pair of pruning shears and start cutting a bunch of branches off trees. The second thing you want to be mindful of is where are you getting these plants from? If you're getting from the wild, taking one or two cuttings on private land is preferable over public land because you're defacing the public. We've talked about leave no trace. We've talked about being ecologically mindful and responsible to the environment. You take those branches off, they're not producing fruit in the wild anymore, therefore wildlife are not accessing those fruit, those foods anymore. But if you have private property or access to a private property that has things like choke cherries, has things like blueberries, has things like um, feral apple trees, yeah, taking cuttings off those are a great idea and germinate, uh, not germinate, but encouraging this uh, to uh, create roots is great. Now, there's a few different ways to get cuttings and to make them root. Uh, the main thing you're going to be doing across the board is you're going to want to have some sort of cutting tool. Uh, I prefer pruning shears that are really well sharpened, and I, I'm going to sterilize them between cuttings. So I bring a little bottle of rubbing alcohol with me, and I spray the blades, I spray everything down, and I'm going to cut very clean cuts that are with very sharp pruning shears, 
and then I'm going to immediately put them into a rooting hormone. Now, the main rooting hormone that you find on the market is something called IBA. You can find it from a bunch of different product uh, brands and products. You can buy rooting hormone 100%, and that's what I usually end up doing because I like the powder form and the gel forms I like a lot. They're something I can easily carry in the field with me. They're fairly shelf-stable. I can use them again and again throughout the season. Another way to do it is something that a few friends of mine have done, and I've done before in the past, and that is making what's called willow water. So you're going to get a big mason jar, fill it with water, and you're going to go out and cut a bunch of willows, real true willows, not dogwoods of any kind, willow, specifically willows. And you're going to cut them into one foot lengths or nine inch lengths, whatever length you prefer, uh, you prefer and you're going to stuff them all into the jar. And you're going to keep get the water level up. This is going to take several weeks to a month or two. And then you're going to see all these willows popping roots. They're all going to start popping roots. Pull them out. Plant those. Now you have a beautiful little hedge of willows along the property edge or along uh, a creek edge or where a body of water on your property, like a ditch. And they're going to help retain water. They're going to help protect water by creating shade. They're going to create habitat for birds and other wildlife, but they're also going to prevent erosion. It's a great option. And then you're going to go and cut 10 or 15 more willows, cut them down to the right lengths and stuff them into that jar again. You're going to do this two or three times. By the time you're done, you're going to notice that whatever water is in that jar is very cloudy. That is willow water. And that is IBA. That is a free for a source of IBA. And in the process of being free with it, you are also able to get a bunch of willows planted, which can be very beneficial to the ecology and doing all this other amazing stuff for you. So it's beneficial in the sense that you're rooting a bunch of willows and you plant those out in the field. And then you get this water that you can put other cuttings in and soak them for several days to several weeks. It's not as concentrated as the store-bought IBA hormone, right? It's the, like the store-bought stuff from ProMix or uh, I think miracle Grow has their own version. That powder, that gel, all those different products, they're a concentrated form of IBA. So you can just dip and plant. You don't have to soak it in that stuff for long periods. Willow water, you want to leave it in the willow water for at least a while. Then you're going to do one of several things. Some people immediately plant them. Some people put them into a mix with perlite. So they have good drainage. They might even just put them into damp sand. I know some people that sterilize the sand in the oven and then dampen it down with distilled water and then put those into... Um, little Tupperware containers and they put all their cuttings in there and keep them cool in the fridge for several months as if it's a dormancy process and then they bring them out to the sun and that starts to cause rooting to kick off. There's a whole lot of different ways. I've mostly just cut, dipped in IBA and planted and I've done that with currants, I've done that with hazelnut, I've done that with elderberry, black elderberry, black currants, I've done that with quince trees, I've done that with apple trees, blueberries, hazelnuts, all from cuttings. I'm currently attempting my second time on sea buckthorn. Um, the first time I did it, the sea buckthorn did not take whatsoever. And I really want to get some sea buckthorn on the property. A, the fruit are one of the densest in nutrients there is. They're very beneficial that way, but they also handle sal uh, salty and salinated waters a lot better than other native plants. Sea buckthorn is not native. If I plant it along the ditch near the roads on my property, they're going to actually be able to survive and even thrive in those salty environments or more salty environments than my native trees and shrubs. So I've been working with those for that. 
no success yet with the sea buckthorn. I'm learning. And that's part of this whole thing is every species of tree and shrub react to, uh, to different cutting methods differently. Uh, currently, we are in the process of air layering sugar maples, several variety of oaks, and basswoods. Air layering is another technique that is really a clever method. And that is where you have a container of some sort that retains soil. So you can buy air layering pods, which are these black plastic balls that you unscrew from each other. They fit around the branch and then you screw them back together with, a, with some sort of soil or medium inside. Most people use peat moss. I use a technique that I learned from a dude on TikTok, perfectly frank. And what it is, I get a bunch of little Ziploc baggies, little um, sandwich baggies, fill them with a potting soil mix, and I bring zip ties with me and aluminum foil or tin foil. And I select the branches that I'm gonna air layer. And what air layering is, is you do not remove the cuttings from the tree until they create their own roots, right? That's kind of the nifty part here. So you leave them on and let them develop their roots on the tree and then remove them later. So what you're gonna do is you're gonna do this usually in early summer, late spring when the bark starts to peel easily. And you're gonna find an area about an inch and a half uh, long, sometimes two inches long. Some people, if they got big enough bags or big enough pods, they do three inch uh, sl uh, slits. I prefer inch and a half to two inches. And I'm gonna peel all the bark down to bare wood in that inch and a half length or two inch length. Then I coat it with IBA, whether that's the powder, the gel, or I bring some willow water with me, whatever. Then I make a slit in my Ziploc bag and I open that slit and surround the wound I made on the tree with the exposed soil and then Ziploc that bag onto the tree as tight as I can. And then what I've learned to do is wrap that with tin foil with the shiny side facing out. The idea is to keep it from drying out and to keep it from uh, getting sun damage to those rooting areas. And the trick is the first time I did it, I didn't realize I had to remove all of the bark. I thought I had to remove the outer bark. The trick is no, you're trying to cut all the bark off so that tree, that branch is no longer getting any nutrients from this tree and it's getting no more uh, life from the tree and therefore it goes into survival mode and starts having to produce its own roots and goes, oh look, I got these hormones right here where I got cut and there's a soil I can grow into already and it just spreads out those little tiny root nodes. You leave it for four to five, sometimes six months and then you prune it off the tree and plant it. And what's usually recommended then, especially with uh, big broadleaf trees, cut off the majority of the leaves, prune it back so there's very little leaf life because they're going to start trying to suck up nutrients. They're going to start trying to go right to life mode and survival mode. If you take off most of the leaves and most of the branches, the root system gets most of the attention and therefore it expands its roots, develops its roots and gets stronger in the soil. Cuttings are effectively outside of making an IBA or getting an IBA hormone, a rooting hormone, and the tools you use to remove or air layer with, it's effectively free. The plant itself is effectively free. Get them from private land, get them from your own property even, uh, or from neighbor's properties or from friend's properties. If you know a friend is gonna be cutting a tree down, ask them if you can get some, and you know that's a fruit tree or a fruit bearing tree or nut bearing tree, ask them if you can get some cuttings off at first. When we are doing ecosystem management and trees have to come down, I make cuttings off of them and I, and I root them and I, and I plant them and I grow them. 
The one big thing that's a hold off for me when it comes down to cuttings is I don't want to create a genetic bottleneck. So if I, let's say I take cuttings, 20 cuttings off a tree, I don't want to plant them all right beside each other because they're all clones of each other. They have all the exact same genetics. So if a disease or an illness or an infestation comes through, they're gone. They're all gone. What I prefer to do is I select, let's say 10 to 15 trees across an area that are spread out. If I have access to five or six properties that have sugar maple on them, I'll go and get cuttings from all those properties and then bring them together, mix match them, root them and plant them. If I'm doing that with oak, same thing. If I'm doing that with hickory, same thing. If I'm doing that with apple trees, same thing. Hascaps, same thing. Buckthorn, sorry, not buckthorn, uh, sea buckthorn, same thing. Although I'm still working on the sea buckthorn. Um, my best successes to date with rooting, uh, rooting cuttings is elderberries, like black elderberry and, uh, black currants. I've had amazing success with black currants. I've had amazing success with black elderberry. You can have very good success with raspberry family. So all the different varieties of raspberry that are native to Ontario. You know somebody's cutting back all their raspberry bushes because they're getting out of control. Go and help them cut them and make a bunch of cuttings, root them and plant them where you want them. Now you got raspberry bushes. You can do this with grapevine. You can do this with a lot of different plants. Uh, cuttings make up a huge portion of my crops because A, I'm trying to grow mostly trees and shrubs. So that makes sense. But also because they're very easy to get started because the tree is already, the cutting is already in its mind an, L, an, an adult tree. And so it just needs, it's basically saying, okay, I'm in survival mode. I've had all these years of growth. I'm going to take some of my energy and make some new roots. Okay, now I've made my roots in the first year of my new life. Okay, well, now I'm going to put out more branches. And now that I got all these new branches, I'm going to put out new flowers. And so by year three, you're already producing fruit-bearing flowers on shrubs. Whereas if you planted seeds from elderberry, currants, uh, oaks, sea buckthorn, whatever, it could take upwards of a decade or three, <laughs> depending on the species, before you start getting an actual response. An actual, uh, not a response, an actual like yield off your crop. So starting from seed is not always the most intelligent way to get something going fast. It's still a great way to get a lot of genetic diversity, don't get me wrong. But having seeds started and uh, cuttings started gives you also this natural progression of succession happening in your garden. Effectively going beyond having an orchard into what is referred to as a food forest. Because you have different layers of growth happening and layers of succession happening. That is a really, really beneficial way to look at gardens and doing it cheaply by doing cuttings and seeds from grocery store or from food, uh, from farmer's markets, from friends gardens, whatever. Some plants you can't do this with. Uh, pawpaw does not handle cuttings well. Um, the weirdest thing is from the research I've done over the last like five years trying to learn more about growing pawpaws was they said the only time that we recommend you take a cutting is from a one foot to two foot tall seedling and you're going to cut it down to the base and immediately root it. If I have a one to two year old seedling of a pawpaw, why would I cut it? Why would I do that? 
that's almost like doing two steps forward, one step back, but more like two steps forward, 70,000 steps back because it's so difficult to pawpaw to grow up here. If I have a two-year-old pawpaw, I don't want to do cuttings on it, but apparently cuttings from adult or mature pawpaws don't succeed. So that means don't do cuttings on pawpaw. Learn the trees that you're working with. Learn the trees that you want to grow and study them and study how you can get them effectively fast growing and doing really well with high thrival and high uh, high thriving and high survival rates. Another option is to go to seed saving programs. A lot of seed saver initiatives are trying to get more people to grow these crops to get them spread out further and have a higher success rate and bringing back ancient or endangered uh, varieties. And therefore going to places like seed saving initiatives or seed saver uh, conferences or meetings or clubs and sharing and trading seeds is a great way to get a lot of them for free and a lot of variety. Uh, I went to one seed saver club meeting uh, five years ago, six years ago I think now, and I came back with like 10 variety of corn, five variety of bean, and over a dozen varieties of squash seeds. So right there I had so much variety for just a three sisters garden, which I don't do three sisters gardens, I have a whole thing about three sisters gardens anyways. But right there if I wanted to do a three sisters garden, I could have done it with so many different combinations, right? Right now, I'm getting ready to arrange with folks to do a trade of Forgetia Kosman seeds for Haudenosaunee popcorn. Because I've decided over the last few years, I've grown a lot of flint corn uh, varieties, mostly Anishinaabe calico flint corn. And I've grown a lot of flower corns over the years. Uh, Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabe, Lene Lenape, all these different varieties of flower corn. And I've decided that I've done a lot of those things. I've got a lot of that seed saved up. I've shared that seed with a lot of people. Now it's time for me to grow popcorn because A, it's a little harder to come by as old school heirloom indigenous popcorn varieties. B, I freaking love popcorn. And if I could grow fields of popcorn and feed myself popcorn whenever the hell I felt like and it was free because I grew it myself, hell yeah. I'm going to do that. So I'm working right now on getting Haudenosaunee variety or uh, Six Nation varieties like Seneca, Mohawk, Yuga, Onondaga, Oneida, Tuscarora, their nation's varieties of popcorn that I can grow here on my garden, which is sheltered from other corn varieties so I can keep the genetic uh, purity of those corns strong so they remain heirloom. And I'd be eating healthy corn, popcorn, when I'm watching movies with my kid, when I'm watching TikTok videos or listening to podcasts like this one, I can sit back and eat one of my favorite snacks in the world, knowing that it came from my soil. So hell yeah, I'm working on that right now. Sometimes it's a very small fee to buy these seeds from those seed saver initiatives. Sometimes it's free. And sometimes it's just for an exchange of other seeds or root stocks or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The final way to look at getting cheap crops in the ground is grocery store dried beans and other seeds like lentils and whole unprocessed grains, things like that, um, and just broadcast them all over your soil. So this year I made four new beds on the garden. However, because of our time frame, 
I wasn't going to be able to put any crops in them that I could manage. I wasn't going to be able to put corn in. I wasn't going to be able to put a lot of potatoes in. I wasn't going to be able to put a lot of anything in. And so I went into, because we're in the middle of the move, like July 9th, we left our house. We, we moved into the off grid. And in a couple of days after that, I was leaving for Halliburton. And a few days after that, I was leaving for the jungle of Columbia. I was not going to be around much for most of this summer. And when I was around, I'd have to work on the new house and the move. I didn't have time to grow crops and so that I could, that needed maintenance. And so what I did is I made all these garden beds in the early spring into late spring and then I went into our uh, food pantry and I grabbed every bag of dried beans that I had. I had like 10 different varieties of dried beans that are from the grocery store and they were going to expire next year. We got them at the beginning of the pandemic and just didn't go through all the bags. I'm, as you remember, I'm sure a lot of us remember the beginning of the pandemic, food Food supply was very scary to everybody. Everybody was very nervous that we were going to run out of food. Um, and so we were like, okay, everybody's fighting over canned beans. I know how to make baked beans myself. So I'll buy the dried beans. And I bought a lot of bags of dried beans and just stockpiled them. And we ate quite a bit of them because, again, I know how to make baked beans and I like eating beans. But I had bought like 30 or 40 bags <laughs> We just didn't go through them fast enough. We just didn't. And by the second year, by the end of that, actually by the end of the first summer of the pandemic, we were growing our own beans. We had uh, Ganawage pole beans. We had rattlesnake beans. We had um, scarlet runner beans, all different varieties of beans growing in our garden already. So why would I keep eating these store-bought beans when I had these delicious fresh beans to eat in green bean form or in soup beans in the fall? And so... We just kind of forgot about this 10 bags of beans, of dried beans. And there was like the black navy beans, there was red pinto beans, uh, sorry, red uh, red kidney beans, pinto beans, all kinds of variety of beans. And I was like, okay, I've made these garden beds. If I don't plant in them right now, invasive weeds are going to get in like garlic mustard, sumac, who knows is going to get in there. And I'm going to fight the next year and going to fight them in the soil. So I need to put in a cover crop. My cover crop was beans. I took all those bags, ripped them open, scattered them all over the surface of these garden beds, and then just threw a light mulch of straw on top of them. Very light mulch, like literally handfuls just to cover them so they don't get dried out in the sun. And then I hit them with a hose and then that rest of the week rained. And we had thousands of bean plants coming up out of the ground. Thousands of bean plants. They were growing so quick and some of them were bush bean varieties, some of them were pole bean varieties. It was just chaos. And this is what some of my friends call chaos gardening, where you just spread seeds, just broadcast them random, let them kind of intermingle and fight for the survival. And it doesn't do well for beans. Beans don't do well competing like that, but the survivors did produce some beans and we got some green beans off them great. Didn't have to do much irrigation for them. Didn't have to do much for fertilizer. And more importantly, they had such a thick mat of beans. No weeds came up in them. Like nothing survived in there with them. If there was, there could have been purple loosestrife and garlic mustard seeds galore in there. And they just never came up. There could have been Japanese knotweed in there with them. And it just never had a chance to get a foothold, a toehold even. 
And so it was phenomenal being able to just throw down a cover crop like that. That cost me some grocery money four years ago, three years ago, something like that. And so we use these store-bought beans that we just don't end up using or eating. And they get a second life as plants because they aren't dead. They're still seeds. These can be lentils. These could be wheat. If you're getting whole unprocessed wheat grains, uh, you can grow your own wheat. You can grow like you can. You can make your own bread from home. It's not that difficult as long as you've got a mill to grind it of some variety. But the seeds themselves are very cheap. We've got bags and bags and bags of red fife wheat seed here because I'm planning on growing wheat one of these days on the property. Because I grew, I make my own sourdough. So I'd like to be able to start doing that with my own grain. I think that'd be great. I have buckwheat, which is a great cover crop, but also tastes pretty good as a buckwheat flour. And it's a gluten-free option for my friends that have celiac that come to visit or are living gluten-free for other reasons. Some of the reasons that don't make any sense to me, but some of those reasons are actual health issues, but whatever. All these options can be done for very, very inexpensive prices. So when you look at the large, broad spectrum of options of getting crops for cheap or free, you can do root cuttings, you can do air layering, you can get crops from grocery stores or farmer's markets and just cut the tops off that are still living tissue or living cellulose and root them again. You can get seeds out of the fruit you're eating. You can get seeds out of the nuts you're eating. Sometimes you can get like, um, well, you know, it doesn't even, sometimes. My favorite thing to do is encourage native nut producing trees in my community because that is what we used to have as a main food crop in Ontario and Quebec and New York and all the way down to Texas was nut trees. They used to say that a gray squirrel could run from Guelph, Ontario to Georgia and never touch the ground because of the chestnut trees. Butternuts, walnuts, hazelnut, which is a shrub, American hazelnut as well as the, the uh, beaked hazel. All these nut trees, all these fruit trees that are native nut and fruit trees, so persimmons, pawpaws, I love growing them. They are my passion. I love getting them back in the ecology and I like having them on my property where I can gather them for food. And one that I've been doing for over a decade now is I'll reach out to friends that I know have a lot of walnuts on their property or oaks on their property. And I'll say to them, hey, if you're getting a ton of acorns or a ton of walnuts or a ton of butternuts and you don't have any use for them, scoop them up into a Rubbermaid and let me know. And they always do me one better. Every single time, they do me one better. They deliver them because they want them out of their life. <laughs> and so they come up with these walnuts from Guelph, from Toronto, from Cambridge, from Peterborough, from Ottawa. They bring all these nuts from walnuts, butternuts, oaks of all kinds. And I literally have bins and bins and bins and bins of them. And then what I do, and this is something that is a privilege for me, not for everybody, uh, I don't plant them. I don't do jack squat with them. I leave them in piles in my yard. And then the squirrels disperse them because they're going to come in, eat some of them, and then bury the rest. And they want to stockpile them for the wintertime. Now, there's a lot of research into squirrel 
and human relationships. A good friend of mine's, uh, good friend of mine actually wrote a very fascinating uh, article for an assignment he's doing in university, so I can't share it with anybody yet. Uh, if he ever gets it to publish, I'm going to love it because it was my, one of my favorite reads. He postula, uh, postulates or hypothesizes something very similar to what I believe is that humans and squirrels had a relationship where we allowed them to eat a certain amount of fruit trees, fruit and nuts from the trees, and then we hunted them and trapped them. And this relationship of pressure on them, allowing them to gather a ton of them, spread them out in the ecology, and then us removing a bunch of those squirrels from the ecology, A, puts trophic pressure on the squirrel, which actually benefits the animal, because you need to have a predator-prey relationship and not at all times do squirrels have a lot of predators around them, especially in urban centers, uh, which comes into the whole quandary of like, how do you manage them in an urban center? You can't use guns. You shouldn't be trapped. You're legally not supposed to be trapping in the city or anything like that. But where I live, I can. I can hunt squirrel here and I can trap squirrel here. And squirrel is a fine tasting meat. It's a really fine tasting meat. It is one of the most delicious meats out in the woods. I've had people describe it as the texture of turkey with the taste of duck. And I've, I wouldn't argue that. It, it's not a bad way to describe it, but I think it tastes a little different. I had one person tell me it tastes like a nutty quail. And I thought that was really cute. I, I didn't, I, I, not in a dismissive way. I just think it's a really cute way to describe the taste. It's like a nutty quail. <laughs> so anyways, um, I did this just recently. I had over 500 pounds of walnuts delivered to my property in the, in the hull, still in their husks, left them in a giant pile. And for the first week, I let the squirrels just go gangbusters on them. And then I set traps and then I started shooting them and I killed about a dozen gray squirrel. Now there's three or four squirrels still hanging around. There used to be almost 20 on my property because we have so much corn, so many apple trees, so many hickory trees, apple trees, oak trees, um, walnut trees. They were eating all those already and they were putting pressure on those trees. Now I took some pressure off them by having all those squirrels run to these walnut piles and living off those, and I killed a dozen of them. And now I have four or five hanging around, maybe one or two that have disappeared from hawks or foxes, or they just realized a lot of squirrels are dying around here, we should get out of here. I ate the squirrels, and all the walnuts were dispersed. And then I put out a second pile of walnut, and the squirrels came back, and we had about half a dozen squirrels coming in. I took another two or three squirrels, and then let the rest disperse those walnuts. And so we have somewhere around 500 walnuts from multiple trees, from multiple regions of the province, dispersed on my property and neighboring properties. And what I'll be doing over the next two years is what I've been doing for over a decade. I then walk through the woods and I mark my walnut trees and I mark my oak trees and I mark my hickory trees and I mark my apple trees and I mark all those trees and that is already an established forest. And that's a brilliant way to be able to do it on my end where I live. The squirrels are doing the work for me. The nuts uh, the, the, tr the nuts of all these different varieties of acorn, walnut, butternut, hickory nut, they were free. People want to get rid of them. And I just let them get dispersed by the squirrels. So I didn't have to do any extra work. All I had to do was then kill some of those squirrels so that they don't easily eat and consume all the walnuts that were planted and buried by themselves. 
And so that can be done in different ways. If you're in an urban setting, you may have to look into a different way to do that. You may want to plant your, you, you can still plant walnuts and acorns and, and hickory nuts and such. The trick is then protecting them from the squirrels. That's the biggest challenge there because they will find a way. If you have them in a two, in a shed and you think that shed is protected from prey, uh, from being preyed upon, no. No, no, no. Squirrels will easily get into a shed. I've done in the past where I had like uh, chinkapin oak or swamp white oak or hazelnuts that I just didn't want them getting. And I plant them all into planters and then I cover the planters with um, hardware cloth and I like ratchet strapped it on so that the squirrels cannot get in there. And that's mostly worked. I've had a couple of chipmunks get in and rain hell on some of my attempts of crops like that. But it does work in the long run. One way or another, growing those seeds, is those tree seeds, is doable. Very doable. Because the squirrel, in my situation, I create trophic pressure. I consume those squirrels. Their organs go into the compost. Their bones go into the compost. Their hides get turned into bowstrings and pelts of all kinds. And then their work in the field of planting all those tree seeds and then being killed off so that they can't come back and put pressure on those tree seeds means that those tree seeds can stratify over the wintertime. Cold stratification is something that happens with native hardwood tree seeds and cold uh, and conifer tree seeds uh, in the north in, in cold condition environments where those trees have learned to evolve and adapt to that cold winter and warm summer where they actually require a cold stratification period. They actually need cold weather. Oaks need it. Uh, maple seeds need it. Certain trees drop their seeds early in the summer so they can have a hot stratification and then a cold stratification. Uh, trees, for example, like um, service berries. Service berry and um, Saskatoon berry drop their seeds in June. Effectively, their their seeds are their their fruit are germinating in June, and uh, not germinating are ripening in June, and therefore they fall to the ground or birds consume them. They poop out the seeds, and the seeds have been in a hot, wet environment, and then they go through a cold phase later. Some need a cold phase immediately, like the ones that drop in the fall. Oak, acorns, uh, walnuts hickory nuts. They need that cold stratification first and then a warming phase as they germinate. Some germinate in the fall like red, oh, uh, sorry, some germinate in the fall like white oak varieties of acorns. Some germinate in the spring like red oak variety of acorns. And so all of them have their own little rules that you got to follow. And you can do that or you can do what I do and gather all those fruit, put them out for the animals to spread and then just do what nature, let nature do its thing. And then just be very good at your tree ID as you walk through your property. Start to identify, oh, look, there's choke cherries here now. Oh, there's, look, there's American, uh, there's American, uh, high bush cranberry now. Oh, look at this here. Look at here, that here. Uh, two years ago, I got to sit back at the lower hall in Hiawatha First Nation, which is across the road from where I lived for the longest time. And I was sitting there and I looked up and I realized four of the trees right on the lakeshore were 10-year-old walnuts. And as I looked at them, it dawned on me that those walnuts were from my front yard 10 years prior. Where in the dead of winter, I was still watching squirrels pulling walnuts out of the ground in my front yard and burying them all over, all over the place. And so in 30 to 50 years, 
the area around my home is going to change drastically. It's going to become much more walnut and hickory nut and uh, hazelnut dominant forests, both in the understory and the and the canopy. Hazelnut in the understory, walnut and oak and hickory in the in the canopy, and this is beautiful to me. And this is the joy of making these kinds of gardens, especially when you know that you're doing it dirt cheap. The number one cost across the board for most of this stuff is fuel for transporting things around, whether it's compost, whether it's the seeds themselves being delivered by people from their places, leaf litter being brought to my place from other places, whatever it may be. That's the number one cost I've kind of accumulated over the years. And there's a carbon cost to that. And we can get into that kind of uh, ethics and everything else. But at the end of the day, all this money is bare minimum. I've done things very affordably over the last four or five years with these projects in my garden, with the food forest, with tree planting initiatives in my camp and around the community. We've kept it very, very affordable by knowing a lot of things and taking time with it. Again, at the end of the day, if you don't have a lot of money, you better have a lot of time and you better have some skills. And if you don't have a lot of time, you better have the money for it. So what I recommend at the end of the day is to look at your whole plan. What do you want to accomplish with your gardens this year? And now, because this episode dropped in December, and you have January, February, March, April, really four months to get everything ready, you have no excuse. You have time on your hands now. Take the time, look at what you want to do with your gardens and your homestead and all these other projects, and say, okay, these are the things that are feasible. How can I accomplish them? And then accomplish them. I believe in you. Believe in yourself. You can do this. If my dumb butt can do all this stuff, you can do it as well. Half of you are as, are as smart as me, and half of you are probably smarter than me. You can figure this stuff out, and you can accomplish the same things I've accomplished. Gardening should not be scary. Every human being on the planet has a green thumb, regardless of what they think regardless of their opinion of themselves. You can grow anything if you put your mind to it. I got friends here in Ontario that are growing lemon trees. Lemon trees, citrus fruit from the tropics here in Ontario. And those trees are producing fruit now after 12, 15 years. I have a peach tree beside my house that started as a peach pit two years ago. Anyone can do this stuff. Anyone can do this stuff. You just got to take your time and be creative. If you don't have a lot of space, make that space count and find community members that want gardens in their spaces too. If you have a lot of space, go gangbusters. If you have the if you have the ability and the legal right to be able to burn things, make biochar, make a ton of compost. If you have access to different kinds of composting and different kinds of manure, use it. If you don't have a lot of money, that shouldn't stop you from being able to grow good food. And this is not me speaking from a place of privilege. The only privilege I have is land. Everything else was against me. Time, money, everything. So I had to be creative. The only privilege I truly had was land access. And I'm not denying that that is a privilege. I am, I am blessed with having that. And I know that a lot of people don't. But you can be creative and make it work. Even on the property I have, I've had land sizing issues and, and like zoning issues and everything else. 
We can figure those things out. You just got to be creative. Don't be afraid to grow things because you can do it. If I can do it, you can do it. With all that said and done, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Musgrave. I hope to see you again on the next episode. And for those of you that are patrons over at Patreon, thank you again for your support throughout this year. It has been phenomenal, and we truly appreciate every penny spent to keep us afloat. And if you want to have some support and you want to get some kickback, go over to patreon.com slash Canadian Bushcraft today. Become a member of the dra- a paying member of the Dragonfly Nation. It'll be as cheap as a coffee a month. And like I drink like 5,000 coffees a month. So like you're not, like it's a drop in the bucket in your end, but at the end of the day, I'm getting another coffee, right? And the dogs are getting fed so they don't turn on me and eat me. And I'm making sure the ducks are fed. I'm making sure the garden can grow, making sure that everything can work here. Another thing we want to say before we go much further, courses are up and running. Canadian Bushcraft is back, baby. We are teaching courses throughout 2024. You can go to our Facebook page and check out what courses we have available. We'll also have a Thrive Card account on the website very soon so you can see all of our courses and register for them right there. We will see you very soon in person. If you're on our Patreon, check out what your tier is. If your tier is at a certain level, that means free courses for you. You've already paid for them, folks. So jump in there, contact us about courses. We have courses going all over from here until Kingdom Come. So check it all out on our social media, especially on Facebook, where a lot of the events are already posted. And we will see you on the next episode of the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast. Take care. Much love. Stay warm, folks.